Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. College football is headed into its final month, basketball has started, football's in full swing, and the World Series is starting this week. BetOnline has you covered with all of the odds, props, promos, and parlays. And if you use our promo code BLEAVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, you can get a 100% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description to this episode. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is Thursday, October 27th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is that you may be listening. This is the 1066th episode here on the Take It Easy podcast every single Monday through Friday going back for three plus years. We have been bringing you a daily show that sometimes is long form conversation and sometimes is a day like today where we have a sports radio Thursday coming at you here today. It's myself. It's our friend Juju Talks Sports. Over at the Slubbuster Podcast, we do uh, a bunch of content over there. We've got a whole lot of stuff coming at you today. He gets uber excited about Christian McCaffrey getting traded to his San Francisco 49ers. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Bailey Zappi. That one's going to be fun. We'll talk about the Arizona Cardinals, the Minnesota Vikings, the Philadelphia Eagles. We're going to talk about the Phillies and Astros in the World Series, a spirited conversation about Bryce Harper and Mike Trout. It's all coming up today here on a Sports Radio Thursday. And since we're going to be beginning by talking about Christian McCaffrey and the San Francisco 49ers, let us begin with our Jimmy Garoppolo parody song that, again, I just want to reiterate for people who are new to the show. I made this back during the uh, week in between the Super Bowl last year thinking that it would only be useful for like three or four weeks with Jimmy Garoppolo getting traded by the 49ers and it is now nine months later and we can still play this clip so I have already used this parody song set to the theme song from the 1993 cult classic Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray we have used this about 600% more than I thought I would. It's like that lady who is doing the drawings of Jimmy Garoppolo every day until he gets traded. Didn't think it would be 200 plus days, but damn it, here we are, and we can keep playing this amazing Jimmy Garoppolo parody song with so many layered jokes that I hope you take the time to listen to. Listen to it on one half speed, go back, appreciate the jokes that are in here because they're super layered, super funny, and I'm glad that we can play this Jimmy Garoppolo parody song 
to kick off a sports radio Thursday. Garoppolo drops back to throw. You're gonna lose the game. The seasons come and seasons go. The Niners need a change. If you don't throw check downs, you're gonna take a sack. Jimmy G is warming up. Yeah, he's your quarterback. No, don't throw it. Interceptions drive us all insane. Phones are calling. Ron Rivera wants to make a trade. If a rookie QB isn't in your plans, just call San Francisco up. They got your quarterback. They say he's smart, and he wins games. That don't mean a thing. If since week one, Trey Lance had played, the 49ers would have had a ring. If your team's rebuilding, talent's what you lack. Trade two picks for Jimmy G. Now he's your quarterback. I got this. So let me just put my uh, my professional orator voice on real quick. In recent news, the San Francisco 49ers, Juju's beloved San Francisco 49ers, have recently acquired Carolina Panthers running back and player who has never played a meaningful football game in his life, Christian McCaffrey. In exchange, the San Francisco 49ers will be sending a 2023 second, third, and fourth round pick to the Carolina Panthers and a fifth round pick in future seasons, which I believe is conditional based on some production outputs. The San Francisco 49ers, as you may recall, do not have their first round picks in this year's draft. They traded it all for crypto, aka Trey Lance, and the San Francisco 49ers have taken their top three picks in the upcoming draft and sent them to the Carolina Panthers in exchange for a player who once made all pro at both running back and receiver. Just had to get that one crypto shot in, didn't you? Just couldn't let that one go, Kyle. Just have to rain on my parade, be ants at my picnic. But no, not tonight, my friend. Not tonight, because for the first time in what feels like forever, the 49ers actually said F them picks and went all in on a player that we know can play. You talk about the Trey Lance thing. We still don't know if Trey Lance can play. I know that Christian McCaffrey can play. I know he can play well, as you mentioned, as a receiver as a running back, as an all-around offensive weapon. And if I was to design a player in a lab to fit into a Kyle Shanahan offense, it probably would look like someone like Christian McCaffrey, someone who could take advantage of that zone running scheme 
In fact, his injury history just fits perfectly with this year's 49ers team. I will enjoy these next two weeks while he's fully healthy and just look forward <laughs> to the eventual hamstring injury that is. But seriously, no, no, not going to go there. Not going to go into that negative place. No, I am just going to say that this trade shifts the expectations that I had for this year's 49ers team. There's no way around it. You make this move. This says not only are we planning on winning now, but given Christian McCaffrey's contract that we have him under contract till 2025, we plan on winning into the future. And this is another opportunity. You mentioned what, what's going to happen down the road with like a Trey Lance, for example. You're getting another high-priced offensive weapon on your team in your locker room. I did not expect this happening tonight. I heard the rumblings that a Christian McCaffrey trade was in the works. I did not expect the Niners to make it. I didn't expect it tonight. Crazy. <laughs> Seriously, I'm in shock, man. Yeah, I totally get it. Like this is an all-in move that is all in for this season and next season. And I understand it a lot more because I believe that the San Francisco 49ers before making this trade were the second best team in the the NFC altogether. Uh they I thought that they would end up coasting through that division regardless of injuries, et cetera, et cetera. I love this trade so much by San Francisco. I love it so much. And I say that having no idea how it's going to work out. I have no idea what the results of this are going to look like. This is a classic case of great process and we'll see what the results are. And the thing I'm hammering all the time about sports, if you have a process and you have an idea of where you're going, that's okay. Even if the results don't pan out because the results are so out of your control, you have no idea what's going to happen with Christian McCaffrey's hamstrings. We don't know exactly how Kyle Shanahan plans to implement him in that offense, given where George Kittle stands and what Debo Samuel's doing and Kyle Juszczyk return. Like we don't know exactly what that's going to look like for San Francisco. I don't know what the results are going to be. The process is the correct one, though. This is a great, great, great decision by the San Francisco 49ers to make this trade. I think that there was a lot of pressure on them, not only coming off a loss against the Atlanta Falcons, but just in general, you know, the last couple of years, yes, you've beaten the hell out of the Rams. You won six straight victories against them, but then in the most important moment in the NFC Championship game, they're the team that advances. And why do they advance? Because they have Von Miller on their defense. And Von Miller creates a lot of pressure. And Von Miller is the big reason for that interception that ended last year's NFC Championship game. That's something that the Rams have been consistently doing. They've been aggressive. And they've been making it hard on the 49ers. The 49ers had to have some sort of counterpunch. Now, they were planning both for a win-now window and in the long term when they went after Trey Lance. This is a move similar to when they made the deal for Emmanuel Sanders a few years ago. This is a move that says... We can go all in on this year's team. And when I look around the offense, there's no more excuses for this offense to not be running at full efficiency. Because I look at an offense with Trent Williams coming back off injury that has George Kittle, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, Kyle Juszczyk, Jimmy Garoppolo, and like we mentioned, the best left tackle in the game in Trent Williams. That's an offense that can win in this league. That's an offense you can roll into battle with each and every day. And I look at what Christian McCaffrey brings to this offense. Okay. If we all agree that Jimmy Garoppolo is not a guy that exactly airs it out and throws the ball downfield, then what is the perfect running back to have? A guy like Christian McCaffrey, a guy that is averaging about 8.4 yards per catch this season, a guy that still is 4.6 yards per carry. Christian McCaffrey is still a damn good player. That's what I've learned throughout this year, that when he's healthy, when he's on the field, Christian McCaffrey, age 26, age 26, people, is still a damn good player. And that's why 
Kyle, John Lynch, I'm glad that you came to the decision <laughs> that we don't care about spending Jed York's money because Jed, pressure's on him to win a Super Bowl, following that Eddie DeBartolo legacy. Well, so this is interesting because this is what trading for Trey Lance and giving away all your first round picks buys you is the cap space to just slide in Christian McCaffrey. I don't know exactly how the money's going to work. They're probably not paying the full contract. I assume Carolina's paying some portion of it, given how much compensation they had to give up. I, I don't think we know the details of that yet. But at the same time, you could just slide that in because remember going into this year, the 49ers had $24 million of cap space available once they restructured Jimmy Garoppolo's contract. This is the benefit of not paying $13 million over three seasons to your first round picks and not having to pay the slot money to all those draft picks that you trade away is that you can just slide in a Christian McCaffrey and things kind of roll normally and they can sign Charvarius Ward and they can give all these people extensions and still have the flexibility. That's ultimately, I think, why they opted to go for Trey Lance back when they did. And I think if they had to do it over again, they probably wouldn't do it the same way. But at the same time, this is what it buys you when you have that flexibility and a guy on a contract. It's the same thing the Chargers tried and failed to do this offseason when they signed all those people to gigantic extensions. Uh, it's the thing that Kansas City did when they had Mahomes in that window and they ended up signing Honey Badger and signing Terry Hill to that big extension. And then as soon as Mahomes makes the money, those guys go away and you have to find value within the margins. This is San Francisco finding value within the margins. And I mean, their quarterback's making backup level money and I'm not talking about Trey Lance at this point. So it slides in beautifully for this year and next year, 2025, I'm not exactly sure what the math looks like there, but for this year and next year, it looks very, very good for San Francisco. And I don't think even with those draft picks and cap space, they were going to be able to fix the running back situation because it was bad. And credit to the 49ers <laughs> for acknowledging the bad running back room and making a change. It's bad, but it was going to get better in a few weeks when you did have Elijah Mitchell back and healthy in theory. But what I think is ingenious about this move, too, because I think Mitchell's still going to have a role when he comes back off his injuries, respectively, is that you put a little less pressure on Christian McCaffrey in this offense. If you look at what he had to do in Carolina, he was the every down back. You couldn't put a guy like Chuba Hubbard or Dante Foreman out there to substitute in for him. But in San Francisco, you look at when they were at their best in 2019, for example, Raheem Mostert was a great find for them late in the season, but Raheem Mostert still wasn't an every-down player. He still wasn't a three-down back for them. They were able to get the best out of him because they were able to rotate their backs. If you told me there's a CMC and Elijah Mitchell rotation that happens throughout the course of the season, I will believe you because I think that that's going to be what they're going to use to try and keep these guys healthy, keep these guys on the field because the big problem, again, 49ers, 49ers running backs in particular, they get hurt. They go through them like cannon fodder. So I'm hoping that that doesn't happen with Christian McCaffrey, given like Trey Lance, you put a heavy investment here. We're talking about all these draft picks. You're not going to have those anymore. I told you the Niners scratch on draft picks all the time. They also hit on draft picks. So hopefully their recipe of continuing to land a fifth round, sixth round pick that turns into an all pro works out for them. <laughs> Christian McCaffrey, I can tell you, if he's healthy on the field all 17 games, then you know what? He's going to be all pro for you. There's no question. There's no dispute about that one. Last question I have for you, though, with this move, what do you think? Them against the Eagles, assuming everyone gets healthy, do the Niners have the best roster in the NFC? It'd be a really fun matchup to watch. I, I would love, love, love to watch San Francisco play Philadelphia. I just want to watch Philadelphia play an elite defense, period because I, I would love to see how that offense stacks up against a defense like San Francisco or Tampa. I think 
San Francisco and Philadelphia are the two best teams in the NFC. By the way, Steve Kime, he looks like your right thumb. And also Steve Kime looks like a 1990s wrestler who's a little bit past his prime. (laughs) Steve Kime may look like a thumb, but he traded for Robbie Anderson in the wake of an injury to Marquise Hollywood Brown, the wide receiver they traded for in the offseason. So they were trying to make this a more dynamic playmaking offense. And so far at this point, there's been nothing really dynamic about the Arizona Cardinals team. I mean, you have a air raid offensive coordinator and Cliff Kingsbury, and you have Kyler Murray coming off a new extension. And so far, I mean, they're worse than the Seahawks. What? Who would have saw that one coming? Nobody, nobody saw that one coming at all because no one foresaw Geno Smith coming and nobody foresaw the Seattle Seahawks being one of the highest turnover margin teams in the league, which is kind of more just a product of luck. But at the same time, no one saw that coming. And to add to it, you you take away one of their wins if it wasn't for an amazing, unprecedented comeback against the Las Vegas Raiders. Credit to them for being able to pull off that victory, but still... Their, their season has just been hanging on by a thread. They are currently in shambles. I don't think there's too much to dispute about where the Arizona Cardinals are as a team, as a franchise. Comes in a weird year for them because we talk about Kime. Kime, who got the extension. Cliff Kingsbury, who got an extension. Kyler, who got an extension. Out of the three guys, we know that Kyler is the most safe. But yeah. what's the move for the Arizona Cardinals? I, I produce a Arizona Cardinals podcast with our friend Walter Mitchell uh, with Revenge of the Birds. You can check that out. It's really good content, especially this week. So it, it was recorded before the Robbie Anderson trade, but there's really good analysis if you want really in-depth Cardinals stuff. I'm just going to kind of take the best of that and mold it into four minutes. He turned to, he has a great term for what he calls the Cardinals offense. He calls it the K-Raid offense because it's Cliff Kingsbury's adaptation of an air raid offense. They run the ball a lot. They use a lot of screen pass to set up plays very occasionally do they use the offensive lineman formations that are very specific to the air raid offense it's a mutated form of the air raid offense similar to how like Andy Reid picks and chooses plays from the air raid offense to put into his college type scheme for Patrick Mahomes but also has like different eras of NFL offenses mixed in. Like that's kind of what Cliff Kingsbury's adopted with that team. And Jason LaConforta of CBS did a great story about this. That was basically like, look, Cliff is stubborn about changing the way that they run. They don't do a lot of game prep at the start. Kyler Murray's also a little bit hard-headed and kind of butts with him in terms of when he can change the plays at the line of scrimmage. It seems like a situation where the K-Raid offense isn't really applicable to what the Cardinals are trying to do, no matter how many weapons they give him and no matter how many offensive line formations they set up. So it reminded me a lot of how in the 2021 draft, once everyone knew Trevor Lawrence was going to be the one pick, we just stopped picking apart Trevor Lawrence specifically. If Kyler Murray hadn't signed that extension this offseason, I think the whole conversation this week would be about Kyler Murray's contract, about franchise tags, about, you know, fifth year options. That, that would be the conversation this week. But because Kyler already got the extension and there is no scenario where they, they can technically get out of his contract after 2024, they have like a small window in March of 2025 where it's only like a $30 million dead cap hit. But basically, because Kyler is 100% their quarterback for the next three years, this year plus the two after that, they're going to get a chance to work through it a little bit. He's going to get that opportunity. I don't think Cliff Kingsbury is going to. And 
Steve Kimes' reputation, as Suge White, as I call him, shout out Bomani Jones for that nickname. Steve Kimes' reputation would render a firing worthy, but he has a very buddy-buddy relationship with the owner of the team, and he's survived much worse at this point. Like, drafting Josh Rosen and pivoting to Kyla Murray, most general managers don't get to be the one who oversees the next regime when you make that choice. So Steve Kime has survived worse questions in the air whether he's still the coach or not but this might be a cut your losses situation in cliff kingsbury and vance joseph too vance joseph i've already seen a team quit on vance joseph once so if the cardinals defense quits on him wouldn't be surprised by that one either i think the coaching staff is going to be the first domino to fall if they miss the playoffs i think i heard someone once say that you get as a gm three coaches if you're a head coach get three quarterbacks and if you scratch on all three then you're out so I think Kime in would not be in charge of another coaching search if it came down to it. And I don't think that Cliff Kingsbury would keep his job, obviously, if this season went down the tubes. So I think you're going to see a change in both the GM and head coaching position after the season. And you mentioned we would be talking about Kyler Murray's contract had he not signed it. By that virtue, was it a mistake that they got the deal done before the season? I'm going to say no. Because I'm going to say that this is not a permanent state of being for Kyler Murray. I need a larger sample size than six games because I've seen Kyler Murray look awesome this year. And I've also seen him be totally worthless. So, But didn't you I need get a that sample, sample size at the tail end of last season as well? That one's when do we factor because, that into the math? So I gave the Cardinals a pass for the end of last season. And the reason I gave them a pass is they had a catastrophic amount of injuries. Not just Kyler himself dealing with the ankle injury, but DeAndre Hopkins was out every game at the end of the season until the playoff game in which they had Max Garcia, who I believe is like the backup on the Giants now trying to block Aaron Donald. And they just had no chance in that game. I give them a pass for how last season ended without DeAndre Hopkins and without JJ Watt and without three of their starting offensive linemen. I gave Aaron Arizona personally a pass and Kyler Murray's made two Pro Bowls in three seasons and they're not like Pro Bowls where it's like oh damn they had to appoint someone because everyone dropped out it's not a Mac Jones Pro Bowl or a Mitchell Trubisky Pro Bowl like he's been named Pro Bowler as of one of the three best quarterbacks in the NFC in his second year and his third year so I was in favor of giving him the extension because you had to because Kyler was not going to play another down for the Cardinals without that extension no, nor should he because that's the perfect situation for him. He's in that tier two of quarterbacks where because he's making so much money, you have when to be does incredibly he good tier? within the margins. Not after six games. I've seen two but it's years not six of samples. It's, it's six games and whatever the tail end of last season was when he started to go downhill. And again, I what you're saying I, I on the injuries, but yeah. like there's a lot of quarterbacks that have to work around injuries. Yeah, totally fair. And for me, I'm not doing the analysis on that end of season because of how terrible the Arizona What about the was. tail end of the previous season? That one is a fair conversation. And and at the time, I was in favor of Kyler Murray's a person you give $46 million to because a year from now, he'll be the seventh highest paid quarterback in the NFL. Whereas right now, he's the third highest paid quarterback. He'll be the seventh highest paid, and he's about the seventh or eighth best quarterback in the league. So I would have, uh, I would have still given him the extension, although... Arizona, what giving him the extension does is he's going to have the leeway to build that roster up. And, and we can talk about the transactions they've made also as well, but he's going to get the leeway to work through this. And I think that's ultimately the right decision because you choose quarterback over Cliff Kingsbury, who I said going into this year, I have no evidence either way as to whether he's a good coach or a bad coach. He's kind of in purgatory. So what's the perfect coach for Kyler? 
personally, if I were making the hire, I would actually go defensive coach and then bring in an offensive coordinator, uh, possibly. I mean, it's difficult because like I would say Joe Brady, who's the quarterback's coach for the Bills, but I think Joe Brady might turn down the offer to be offensive coordinator of the Cardinals. But you know, maybe money talks in that situation, but I would actually go defensive coach. I might go Gannon in Philadelphia, D'Amico Ryan's in San Francisco. Uh, I would even go Brian Flores over in no, Pittsburgh. No, no, no. D'Amico, like, come on. Don't, don't go in division. Don't do that to us. Go to the AFC. Be like McDaniel. <laughs> Be like Sala. Don't go to the NFC. Don't go I, Kyler. But again, I, I always say, I don't know what makes a good head coach. So actually, if you're asking me, who would I hire as head coach? I would say I would sit down with an interview of 10 to 12 candidates. I would ask them about leadership and skill sets because that would be the thing more important to trying to identify who the next Mike Tomlin, Sean McVay, Sean Payton, those coaches that add value. I would sit down and actually do an interview to try and identify who the best leader would be if you're actually asking me who it is. But if you're asking me to just throw out names, I would throw out defensive coaches first for the Cardinals, most likely. I can rationalize your thought in the defensive head coach hiring process because I think the best coach for Kyler is someone that actually wants to coach Kyler. And what I mean by that is I felt like Cliff, I felt like that hiring, they went into it with the same kind kind of idea of Steve Nash and the Brooklyn Nets of I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to be your buddy. We're going to be more of a partnership between this head coach and player. Kyler is a young guy. He hasn't built up the resume to necessarily have a buddy buddy in the league in the same way like Aaron Rodgers is with his quarterback coaches or Tom Brady is with whoever he wants to bring on on staff. Kyler doesn't have that same level of authority or he shouldn't have that same level of authority because to be frank, he hasn't done shit in the NFL to this point. He's had an amazing college career and he's done a couple nice things, but there's been a lot of guys that have gone to a couple pro bowls and then been out of the league within the next five years. Kyler could fall into that camp very easily. So I think Kyler Murray did enough to earn that contract. Kyler Murray did enough to earn that contract and setting himself up for the next few years. Like that dude from being the greatest high school quarterback in the history of Texas to winning a Heisman Trophy to being the number one pick you, and making no, two no, Pro no. Bowls and having you, a QBR in the top ten. You can't get, be getting paid based off what you did in high school and college. That well, doesn't so, matter so then what you go do to the pros. NFL. I was going to say so. Top ten in QBR both of his last two seasons. I've seen him also make the plays where he just rolls to his right forty yards down the field, puts a ball within a four uh, quarter of an inch window. Like that's the the, the skill set that you're paying. I all also that money saw for. him have that and, game against the Rams in the playoffs last year. Totally fair, and that's why he's in that weird second tier, right? This was always the problem with Russell Wilson. Was like Russell Wilson makes all this money. And the Seahawks are not making good decisions to find value. And that's on the general manager. You got to find value within the margins, which brings us to I've the transactions the that they've been making. I've dropped him a tier. I think that he's fallen out of that second tier for me. So he's Derek Carr? Probably. Ooh. We can we can play the Kyler. I, I have well, a Kyler well, Murray think about what can... Ky- Think about Derek Carr, what, what he's done. I mean, he's going to probably have like a 10-year, 15-year career and make the playoffs twice, three times in that span. Maybe even never win a playoff game. I hope it doesn't come like that to Derek Carr, but at a certain point, that's that's going to be the narrative built around him. Kyler Murray, again, four years into his NFL career, been to a playoffs and got embarrassed in the first round of said playoffs. And should have been in in 2020 also. They just fell apart at the end of the season with injuries. Then the Bears end up making the playoffs. Yeah, but that that was just because they were playing, uh, what's his name? Was it Strevler, I think, was playing the last game of the season. (laughs) He's about as accomplished right now as a Mitchell Trubisky, as a Mac Jones. And I don't see the situation getting better 
in Arizona, building around Kyler, unless they just knock it out of the park with this next head coaching hire. Well, so this brings us to the transactions that I think are so interesting because uh, our buddy 1990s wrestler past his prime, Steve Kime, has basically decided, you know, where we're going to find value within the margins. We are going to trade all of our day three draft picks. We don't value day three draft picks even the slightest. They traded Tay Gowan, who is a fifth round pick the year before as a rookie and an extra fifth round pick for Zach Ertz. They traded a conditional pick for Cody Ford, who's now a backup lineman. They traded a conditional sixth for Trayvon uh, Mullen, who's now their, their third corner at this point. They just gave up a sixth and a seventh for Robbie Anderson. They gave up a third round pick for Rodney Hudson. They don't value those late round picks at all. And by the way, the ones that they have drafted this year, Cam Thomas and MyJ Sanders, both edge rushers, both picked second round and third round. They just wouldn't put them on the field. And then they put them on the field against the Seahawks and both of them got sacks. So like even the picks that they are making, they're not playing rookies, which by the way, is the same complaint Cardinals fans have been making for the last two years because they just don't use Isaiah Simmons. They didn't use Hassan Reddick. He left Arizona, had a breakout 12-sack campaign with the with Carolina, goes to the Eagles, and we find out, oh, Vance Joseph was just playing him at the wrong position for four years. Like Arizona, even the picks they use, they, they don't even use them correctly. And they've just decided we value no day three picks anymore. Well, they technically traded a first round pick for Hollywood Brown also. And they've basically decided we don't value draft picks. We, we value the, the short term fixes of a corner three here, a backup offensive lineman here. We, we just value short term fixes instead of drafting players with third, fourth and fifth round picks. Well, they tried to go all in last year when obviously you have DeAndre Hopkins to the team. You have J.J. Watt added to the team. And now we have DeAndre Hopkins coming off the suspension. How does D-Hop being back and the addition of Robbie Anderson change the fortunes of the Arizona Cardinals for you? Well, it's different. And I don't know if different is better for Arizona, but Arizona is now entering a transition period. And, and if Cliff Kingsbury gets fired, like we all think is probably going to happen, I'm not saying it's a guarantee. I'm Arizona just saying State that Sun Devil job is open. I mean, it fixes a lot of problems, doesn't it? But like, say they miss the playoffs. And if they miss the playoffs, Cliff's not going to make it because they shouldn't have given him that extension in the first place. But the good news about having billions of dollars is that you can just make those mistakes and then be like, yeah, whatever, you're out of here now. Arizona is in this interesting place where this is going to be a transition because like you said, they went all in on Hopkins. He's, I think he's making $27 million relative to the cap this year. They signed J.J. Watt to a two-year contract. J.J. Watt, can and probably will leave at the end of the season. I saw Cardinals fans today talking about if we lose the next game to the Saints, is it time to talk about trading J.J. Watt and trying to get value back for him while you have a chance? And this is a, this is going to be a transition period for Arizona. It's going to be Kyler Murray's fifth-year option comes up next year. So technically, Kyler doesn't make any more money this year than he did the year before. Fifth-year option for $21 million the next year. Then it's 46 million. Then it's 43 million. They are transitioning into we no longer have value at the quarterback position. And so now the game plan is how are we going to build this roster around Kyler Murray? How are we going to build this roster around a quarterback that makes $46 million a year? The same way the Cowboys had to, the same way that the Raiders had to when Derek Carr got his extension, the same way that the Kansas City Chiefs are experiencing right now where 
Tyran Matthews gone now and uh, Tyree Kill is gone and Daniel Sorensen is gone and Charvarius Ward is gone and you have to find value in different places. And I don't trust Arizona to do that better than the competition. I think they'll find good value. I really love Cam Thomas. I love Myjay Sanders. I think Zaven Collins, we might look up in a couple of years, he's putting up Fred Warner numbers. Like he's a really, really good prospect. And I think that there's a chance they'll find that value. I just don't trust Arizona to find better value than say, Kansas City or Green Bay or these teams that have proven that they're well-run organizations and, and that's not what the Arizona Cardinals are. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. So in the NFC North developing story, the Green Bay Packers have dropped two straight games to New York run franchises. They dropped the game against the Giants in London and they just lost to the Jets which kind of puts them behind the eight ball to the Minnesota Vikings, who are 5-1 and one, and already have a head-to-head victory against the Green Bay Packers. I guess the question is, have the Minnesota Vikings already wrapped up the NFC North? Not wrapped up, but more likely than not, they will win. And this is actually the first week that I've actually started to contemplate the possibility of the Vikings winning that division. Because I know the Vikings are 5-1 and one headed into their bye week. They're 4-2. and two. They should have lost that game to the Lions. That was just a weird result. They should be a four and two team that happens to be five and one at this point. And that's just better for evaluating what the team is in terms of like what's going to happen when they get to the playoffs more than it is what's going to happen when they win the division. Five and one versus four and two is a huge difference when we're talking about what's going to happen in the division. So this is the first week I'm contemplating that's like, hey, it's more probable than not that Minnesota is going to win that division and they're probably going to win the division. I mean, not necessarily the last week of the season, but like they're going to win the division and and possibly have a chance to rest people if they don't care about seeding. Like that might be a situation Minnesota finds itself in. And this is the first time I've actually contemplated that possibility because in my mind, I've kept saying it's the same Minnesota team. It's the same Minnesota team. It's the same Minnesota team. And Quite frankly, it might be the same Minnesota team. It's just the Packers are not really great at anything. The Packers are just like good to average at a lot of things. And that's, you know, just been kind of the the biggest surprise I've seen so far this season. It's like they almost lost to the Patriots. They did lose to the Giants and they lost to the Jets and the Jets kind of smoked them like that. That's kind of been the adjustment for myself more than what the Vikings are doing well. Stacking up the position groups, Vikings versus the Packers. Obviously, we know we give the edge to them at quarterback with Aaron Rodgers, but you, you, you look, Dalvin Cook, compare him to Aaron Jones or A.J. Dillon in a vacuum. Dalvin Cook probably has the edge there. Wide receivers, no contest. I mean, Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson compared to the current state of the Green Bay Packers wide receivers. Uh, tight end, he, I like Irv Smith Jr. more than a returning from injury, Robert Tanyan. The offensive lines... The Vikings offensive line is worse, but they vastly improved since last season. And the defenses, it's weird that the Vikings defense is better this year than last year, given that last year, obviously, they had Mike Zimmer as the head coach. And I've always respected Mike Zimmer as a defensive play caller. But this Vikings defense has done more when they've been asked to step up and make plays than last year's Vikings defense did. And I, I think that's been the big story and the big part of the turnaround. And you mentioned the close games. The, you mentioned the game against the Lions, right? The fact that those games are now going their way instead of against them, obviously has led to them being 5-1. and one. And last year's Vikings team would have lost that game 
And that's when we would have questioned, oh, same old Vikings. Now, currently, their only loss is to the undefeated Philadelphia Eagles. So if you're a Vikings fan, you can have schemed up this year really any better. And, okay, you beat the Lions. It's nice to have a head-to-head division win. And, again, the big thing for them is the week one victory against the Packers. They have some breathing room here, too. Even if the Packers catch them, they have that win to kind of fall back on, which is a nice luxury that they haven't had. And you talk about the early coaching the year candidates, right? I feel like Kevin O'Connell has to be strongly in that consideration. Uh, I think Brian Dayball right now is the clear lead, doing more with less with what he's doing with the Giants. I imagine it's refreshing for Kirk Cousins that he doesn't have a toxic relationship with his head coach because we know that him and Mike Zimmer clearly disagreed on a multitude of issues behind the scenes and they had those sideline blowups. So I, I think those are all the factors that have led to the Viking season we're seeing to this point. I guess for the Vikings fans and the Vikings franchise, the question they ask they have to ask themselves is, yeah, we're five and one. Yeah, we're cruising to this NFC North title, but are we truly a franchise that's turned the corner to being a championship contender? And you look at the current state of the NFC as is, you have the Niners who very talented team, but they've been having played their JV unit due to injuries. You look at the Eagles undefeated right now. You look at the NFC East, and we're still trying to make sense of what the NFC East currently is constructed because you have the Cowboys who just dropped the game with their backup quarterback, Cooper Rush, after going, of course, 4-0 and with Cooper Rush as their starting quarterback. Now they get Dak Prescott back, so the, how much does that improve that team? The New York Giants, at this point, they're 5-1. and one. They, they face the Jags this week. They could be 6-1. and one. They aren't going away. They'll be in the wildcard picture just by virtue of their early season record. The Vikings... I like them over the Giants, but I think the hesitancy for people to buy in on the Vikings is that we always feel like they have that dumb game in them, right? We always feel like they have that similar to what we consider. Think about when we think about the Pac-12, they always have that letdown performance in them. And that will be the true test, right? If they could go a prolonged stretch without having that game happen to them. So... Minnesota, one of my favorite stats from last year is that if we had not played the final two minutes of each half of the first half and the second half last season, if we had just not played them all together, if football quarters were 13 minutes long or 14 minutes long, whatever you want to say, if you take out just that four minutes of every game, the Vikings would have gone 15 and two last year. They would have gone 15 and two if you don't play the the last two minutes of every game last year. And the Vikings this year, have not changed their defense at all. And the reason that they are as good defensively as they've been is they have the second best turnover margin in the NFL at plus four. They're forcing a lot of turnovers and turnovers, as we know, are very sporadic year over year. I think the Eagles are plus 12 right now. They're like eight turnover margin ahead of everyone else. It's like, how are the Eagles at six and oh? Probably because they are plus 12 in the turnover margin. And that's why their defense is top two in the league because they are, I think the next closest team is the Vikings at plus four on the turnover margin. So Vikings are very much a turnover dependent defense. Those things don't carry over because turnovers can be sporadic game to game and season to season. The best comparison I can give you, and again, This might change as the season goes along, but I feel pretty confident in saying the Minnesota Vikings are last year's Cowboys. Think of that in your mind. Everything you thought about the Cowboys going into the playoffs last year and the last five weeks of the season, that's what this Minnesota team is. It is a team that is going to win their division more probably than not. They're going to have a two, three, four seed in the playoff, and they're in that second tier of teams. I don't know exactly who makes up the first tier other than the Eagles in the NFC, 
but it's all about matchup in the playoffs for Minnesota. I mean, the Cowboys could have, should have, would have beat the Niners last year, but the Cowboys were a team that was favored against the Niners, but wasn't really trusted against the Niners. And obviously they lost in a close game. Vikings are one of those teams that's going to host a playoff game. If they play Green Bay, they might be a favorite. If they play Tampa, they might be an underdog. If they play the Giants, they might be seven-point favorites. It all depends on matchup once they get to the playoffs because like last year's Cowboys, they are incredibly turnover-dependent and have a top-10 offense. I I can agree with that because I think if they can avoid a more physical matchup or more physical set of matchups in the playoffs, because the reason I think that they were able to win that week one game against the Packers is, to put it blunt with the Packers, I look at the Packers and think of a kind of a soft team. I mean, they're just, they're just not a physical team. And that's why the Niners have been able to abuse them in the playoffs in recent history, whether it be the Harbaugh administration or whatever's what they've managed to put together with Kyle Shanahan, D'Amico Ryan's Robert Sala, all those cogs on their defense. If the Vikings were to run into a team like the Niners, assuming full strength, assuming the Niners have their guys back, I think that's a problematic matchup for them because we saw that in the Monday night game against the Philadelphia Eagles. We know at this point that the Philadelphia Eagles defense, they're nasty. They'll get after you. That defensive line is one of the biggest strengths of that team. And that's what was a big problem for them whenever they were playing against the Vikings. And then add in, of course, that they have big play Darius Slate on the outside as well, who was blanketing Justin Jefferson. Those are the type of matchups that could pose threats to the Vikings and their hopes of making a potential Super Bowl this year. You look around the NFC, who else is going to kind of potentially challenge them? Even like a Giants team isn't completely out of the question to pose problems for Vikings because what the Giants do well, right? Run the ball, aggressive defense, can force a turnover. Those are all kind of like things that could hurt like a Vikings team. So it, it's just really what the pathway to the championship is. And luckily for them, and we'll see how this plays out with like the Eagles as well. But l- luckily for them, they do play in this NFC North where they've proven that they could beat the other tough team in the division, the Packers, and they should be able to beat the Vikings and Lions respectively. So similar to what the Green Bay Packers have been able to do, they might be able to get the number one seed potentially this year. That's still well within a range of outcomes for the Vikings as the Eagles will have a tougher test to get there because of obviously improving division around them. And I think the Eagles schedule is slightly tougher uh, towards the end of the year. So I, I think the Eagle, the Vikings, the best thing that they can hope for, obviously, is wrapping up the number one seed. If they were able to do that, that might change completely how you look at this team going into the playoffs. It, it's just, again, can they avoid the letdown performances, which we know kind of are one of the big things that we associate with the Vikings and why we kind of delegitimize them as a playoff contender because of past seasons, what we've seen with this team. I would love to watch them play the Rams in the playoffs. I would love to watch that matchup. And that might be a 7-2 or a 6-3. I mean, basically, if you want to do dumb like NFC playoffs for dummies, I will ask everyone right now. You can only have one of these teams make the playoffs, the Giants or the Rams. One te- Only one can make it. Who's going to make it between those two? Okay, but here's the thing. It's not as cut and dry as that for me because if the Giants get to 6-1 this week facing Jacksonville, and the Rams, luckily they're on bye week, so the Rams don't have to worry about it. But the Rams come back and they face the Niners, the team they struggle with. They drop to three and four after that. And suddenly the Rams just might be screwed yeah, out of it by their totally early season fair. results. Meanwhile, yeah. the Giants get to be in cruise control rest of the year because of what they've done in the early part of the season. Six and one, I mean, at a certain point, it just becomes harder to screw that up and not make the playoffs. 
the, the reason I say that is because I, I think six of the NFC playoff teams are set at this point. It's the Eagles, it's Dallas, it's San Francisco, it's Tampa, it's the Vikings, and it is, who am I forgetting? Dallas Green, oh, Green Bay. Green Bay is also probably going to make the playoffs. I know Green Bay has had a tough start to the season, but Green Bay is probably going to make the playoffs. And I think it's interesting to see how that plays out because all of those uh, five teams that I mentioned, and then pick your poison, Giants, Rams, maybe Cardinals turn it around, but that's a another video that we released on the channel. But basically, I would say that all of those matchups propose unique and different situations for what the Vikings do because their offense is the Rams, except Dalvin Cook is a capable running back and the Rams running game is shit. So basically, like they are an incredibly capable offense that passing wise is very dependent on what Justin Jefferson does and Kirk Cousins' connection with Justin Jefferson. So that's a really they they have Jefferson as like a 35 to 38 percent usage rate, which which I think Cooper Cup is sitting around. Cooper Cup's by far the highest in the league at like 44%. So that's what they want to do on offense. And their, their defense is not actually as good as the numbers suggest. They're just really good at forcing turnovers. And that's what helped them beat the Lions. It, it kept them in the game a couple weeks ago. And uh, it was interesting because um, in, in this last game, the Dolphins outgained the Vikings two to one. The Dolphins had twice as many yards of offense as the Minnesota Vikings, and the Vikings won that game kind of running away. So that's kind of a testament to like turnovers end up flipping the game 10 to 12 points at certain situations. So again, playoff matchup will be so interesting to watch for the Vikings. And I'm with you. Number one seed isn't out of the question and something that they should probably value a lot. So currently they are four and oh in one possession games. So that is something that again have hasn't went the Vikings way in the past. And that's mm -hmm. been one of the big reasons why they've struggled to make the playoffs or be able to be certainly a contender, even in their own division. As long as that maintains, I think that the Viking thing isn't an aberration and it is something that legitimately go into this NFC playoff. They will be a team given their offensive weapons can pose problems for any team that's hoping to make the Super Bowl this year. There's a lot of teams with question marks. And meanwhile, the Eagles just keep chugging along. Jalen Hurts was the biggest question mark coming into the year. And Jalen Hurts has been the answer that they've been asking for at quarterback, at least this season. We don't know what it means long-term for Jalen Hurts, but at least this season, Jalen Hurts has not hindered this team in any faculty. In fact, in many ways, He's made them better. He's made them tough. He makes them tough to game plan against because of what he's able to do with his athleticism. And you add the playmakers on the outside, A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. And so far at this point, this Philadelphia offense has been a nightmare. Also led by a scrappy defense. Have we bought into the Philadelphia Eagles? Well, I am uh, in on the Philadelphia Eagles in the sense that I thought the Cowboys would win the division at the start of the year, and Philadelphia is clearly a better. I didn't, I didn't understand the Eagles' hype at the start of the season. Now I've seen the evidence that that understands why people were so high on Philadelphia. They are a really, really good team. And by the way, you know how uh, we always talk about the Josh Allen, like you can't teach completion and accuracy. Jalen Hurts has gone from being a 52% passer to a 66% passer. And that 52 was only in like four games. So like small sample size, 
Last year's probably closer to what he was, which was 60% completion percentage. But 60% completion percentage is like slightly better than Drew Locke was with the Broncos. So like to go from that to a 66% completion percent, again, small sample size, need need more data to, to show what it is. But Jalen Hurts has looked really, really good this year. I'm not saying Jalen Hurts is MVP good. He's been very good. He's been a serviceable quarterback and he has an extension coming up this offseason. And if they can pay him... uh $120 million, they might do it. But if they have to pay him $200 million, they probably won't do it. And, and it's a classic franchise tag situation. So Jalen Hurts has had a fantastic season. I have mentioned in another video that uh, they have a plus 12 turnover differential this year, which is pl- which is eight turnovers more than the next closest team in the entire league, which probably explains how they have the number one defense in the league right now is that they are forcing a ridiculous amount of turnovers. And we mentioned that turnovers are a fluky stat, but I can buy into the turnover production from the Eagles a little bit more just because I know that they have playmakers on the defensive side of the ball. I I know that that defensive line could really get after people. And I know that Darius Slay, they call him big play Slay for a reason. And I go back to that game on Monday night against the Vikings and he was making a nightmare for Justin Jefferson. Kirk Cousins went to bed that night dreaming of Darius Slay and his nightmares because he was everything that they wanted when they traded for him a couple years back. Uh, now we're sort of starting to see, well, Howie Roseman <laughs> turn things around in Philadelphia, which is funny, which is really funny given all the shit that Howie Roseman had been getting off of the Super Bowl. Like, the way people talked about Howie Roseman, we would have thought he was a bum. We would have thought he was as you call like uh, Shook White, uh, you know, Steve Kine. That's the way that people kind of like talk about Roseman. It was mostly all just for, if we're going to be honest about the Howie Roseman burying him, mostly for the misses at wide receiver. And I get it. Justin Jefferson, Jalen Rager will be one of those that we always just look back on and say, damn, that really happened. But <sighs> you look at what they've done with this year's team. They still end up with a franchise wide receiver in A.J. Brown and another one with Devontae Smith. Both guys have really changed how Jalen Hurts. I I think what has contributed to Jalen Hurts' development the most, is it Nick Sirianni? Is it the playmakers? Is it the offensive line play? It's probably more explainable by amalgamation of all three, but the fact that the Eagles were able to identify what they needed to do to help Jalen Hurts and get him to that next step is nothing short of fantastic when you talk about what can a front office do to build around a quarterback. We had a big discussion on Kyler Murray and can the Arizona Cardinals build around him? Well, the Eagles have demonstrated if push comes to shove, they can build around a Jalen Hurts. Could they have built around a Carson Wentz? Could they have built around Nick Foles? I mean, in at least that Super Bowl run, they were able able to do it under Nick Foles. So the fact that this front office and this franchise has shown that they've been able to evolve under different quarterbacks I I think is a true testament to what the Philadelphia Eagles organization is. Not to skip the the story there about remember when uh, Doug Peterson tanked the last game of his Eagles tenure and there was that whole controversy because the Giants couldn't make the playoffs instead of the whatever seven, eight and one Washington team. Well, the difference between that victory and that loss was the difference between pick six and picks 10 in the draft. They traded down from six to 12 and got Devonta Smith. So that tank ended up netting them an extra first round pick. 
that first round pick. They then flipped because New Orleans uh, took that draft pick this year and uh, New Orleans moved up in the draft last year. So the Eagles are still collecting that extra first round pick from a single Doug Peterson tanked game. They got two first round picks to move down from six to to 11, originally the spot they were going to get. And they still have that extra first round pick at their disposal because they could just keep trading back. So shrewd decision making by them as well. And uh, yeah, Philadelphia has made good moves drafting and good moves trading. And uh, it's turned into something great. And I know you know how we talked about turnovers earlier. Yes, turnovers are signs of a sporadic defense, but there are other statistics that say the Eagles are a good defense. DVOA on defense has them ranked fifth in the NFL. Pass rush win rate, which is one of those uh, advanced analytics that gets cited all the time. They're sixth in the league. Pass block win rate, they're seventh in the league. So they have a top 10 offensive line and a top 10 defense at preventing pressures and getting pressures on the quarterback. And uh, like I said, their defense is ranked fifth. Their offense is ranked 11th in the league. They're a very, very good team. The Philadelphia Eagles are a very, very good team. And they are the only team I point to in the NFC and say they are great. Now, the 49ers health permitting are also great, but they're the only team I can point to in the NFC and say, hey, they are as good as Baltimore, Buffalo and Kansas City. I mean, not as much Buffalo and Kansas City, but Baltimore is a good comp like they are as good as that team and they're as good as the San Francisco 49ers. And I would love to watch the 49ers play the Eagles in the playoffs. Would love to see that too, because it means the Niners made the playoffs. So I can't complain about that myself. As far (laughs) as that goes, I just hope that as you mentioned, can the 49 IRs make it to the playoffs, (laughs) win the division and compete against the Philadelphia Eagles. That's a question mark that I'll have to answer. But if that matchup was to happen, I would say, unfortunately for the Niners, The Eagles do have a quarterback that tends to pose problems for the 49ers. Regardless of health, the Niners have always struggled around these more mobile quarterbacks that can shift the pocket. All gas, no breaks does tend to have its problems when you send all the gas on the blitz and break contain. And that's something the Niners have done plenty of times. And I think a guy like Jalen Hurts can take advantage of and exploit that if it comes down to that matchup. We actually saw it against Marcus Mariota this past week. Eagles do have the ability to do that, and that would cause problems in that matchup. You look against the Vikings, they show they can bully the Vikings. The Vikings aren't really a physical team. The Eagles are a physical team, and I think that that would translate to think about other playoff contenders. I think that they could probably bully someone like the Packers. We know that the Giants aren't really ready from an offensive playmaking perspective to be able to compete at that level. Ooh, Tampa. Tampa would be great. Tampa, Tampa watching that would be awesome. And you know, they really would want that Tampa matchup, given what Tampa did to them in last year's playoffs. I'm sure there's a lot of guys in that locker room that look at that matchup and think of that as one of their benchmark games, right? What they can do against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So the Eagles, they certainly are Super Bowl contenders. You have to put them in that tier just because you look at the road through the NFC and they realistically can win. And certainly, obviously, they're the number one seed. They just need to win a couple games to put themselves in that position. If they can maintain and stay as the number one seed, get that first round by, then they have the luxury to also being a Northeastern power open air stadium. They also get to play in some bad weather games too, which other <laughs> teams that don't have to deal with the conditions at that level, who knows if they're going to be ready for those type of conditions. So the, the Eagles have some stuff going in their favor in that respect. And then you look across because obviously we would have to look across to the AFC and see the teams they stack up against there. Well, then you're going to have question marks. Can that defense do enough to post problems for Patrick Mahomes? Can they slow down a Josh Allen? You know, that's but any other tough. team they can. Be tight. Any 
I will say any other team in the AFC, they can. It's just only against Buffalo and Kansas City does it not stack up for them. I, I think saw the would... Miami Dolphins put a game plan that posed problems for Josh Allen. I've seen teams all last year pose a game plan that caused problems for Patrick Mahomes. So it's not impossible. It's certainly something that you can do. And hey, if you're one of those old school storyline writers, you would say Eagles... Andy Reid Super Bowl that might be a fun storyline to go in and we talk about potential fun Super Bowl matchups not to get the Philadelphia Eagles fans too hyped up no we're no, still no, no only no. in don't week do seven that. don't we're do that s- we're still only in week seven y'all but by week this is a good opportunity to reflect and admit if we were wrong I thought the Eagles were going to be able to compete within the NFC East I didn't expect them to compete at this level but I was wrong in the sense that I underrated them Maybe I didn't underrate them necessarily as much as my co-host, but I did underrate the Eagles nonetheless. So I can at least say <laughs> I was wrong in that respect. I was also wrong as well. And uh, I, I think talking this out, I realized the thing that I want really badly is for the Eagles to play a team with a great defense. I would love to see what that team and I, I'm thinking back to their schedule. I don't think they've played any great defenses this year. I know they played Arizona and Minnesota and Washington, the Cowboys, uh, Detroit, you which would is say bad were, But I think Cooper Rush did enough to ruin the Cowboys chances in that game. And he literally had a one QBR. One. <laughs> yeah. You know, a one, half. a singular QBR. I <laughs> I so, just want to see them play a great defense. So I you're think, not going to like some of the answers, but when they face the Giants, that is, we'll see a, a yeah, little bit from I, that I'm offense. talking about, yeah, I they think I'm talking Packers. about elite. Well, they yeah, play I'm, the Packers in a few weeks, so that's going to be another interesting game to check out. The Colts, the Colts are a really good defense, and unfortunately we don't get to read much into that game because we know the Colts' offense is awful. But the fact mm-hmm. that we get to see the Eagles offense go against that Colts defense, I think will provide potential answers for you. Uh, they face yeah. the Saints later in the year. That's really late in the year, January I, 1st. I think the thing I'm saying, though, is an elite defense. Like, these are good defenses. I think I'm talking about, like, an elite defense. And I think that's why I said the playoff matchups that most intrigue me are San Francisco and Tampa. Because those are elite defenses. Those are, I think, only behind Buffalo, the second and third ranked defense in the NFL last time I checked. So I understand. I respect the Colts defense. I, I respect Dallas's defense. I respect many of these teams. I I, I just want to see them go up against. I like how you made it a defense. point to say you don't respect the Giants, basically, by omission. Giants are ranked 21st in defense <laughs> in DVOA. Giants, Giants, are, Giants are built on their offense somehow. I don't it's understand okay. how that we're works. We're doing a video but... to attract Eagles fans here, so clearly they're not going to yeah. mind the disrespect of the New York Giants. So, hey. No, I understand. You, I you understand. agree with us. You know, you just, you know, we're, we're digging on your rival yeah. a little bit here, so just give us some love. I want to see the them play elite defense. Play, play one of the best defenses in the league. That's what I'm really interested to see for Philadelphia. Well, I, I guess we really won't see it in the regular season just based off looking on the schedule, but Nonetheless, it means good things for you as an Eagles fan because you look at the next few weeks coming off the bye, I see some wins here. You face the Steelers, you face the Texans, you face the Commanders. There's no reason to think that the Eagles can't realistically start the season 9-0 and and at that point, everything is just gravy. You're well on your way to being the number one seed, Philadelphia. We'll see how it works out for you in the playoffs. These guys are on fire. Let's hear more. Second quarter starts now. The table is set. It is going to be the Houston Astros, a team that you've been high on all season, versus not the San Diego Padres. It will be the Philadelphia Phillies as the Phillies happen to win in five games. The Astros, 
only needed four for the third time in the Astros World Series runs. They'll be facing a NL East foe. The last few times didn't really go too well for them. Do you think they'll have better luck against this Philadelphia Phillies team? Well, the odds say that they'll have better luck against this Philadelphia Phillies team. The Astros are favored by, well, the largest amount since they lost to the Nationals in 2019 of, of any World Series team. So so certainly the, the odds are ever in Houston's favor. There are two sides to take from this with, with Houston. One of them is the 2022 Astros specifically, and then one of them is the Astros at large in terms of what can only be evaluated at this point as the best dynasty in baseball since the 1990s New York Yankees. When you talk about the level of consistent six consecutive ALCS appearances, four World Series, obviously the one championship that will forever be put in dispute. And the fact that Houston switched leagues and stole the Yankees birthrights to winning like the Astros took everything that the Yankees had as their I mean, that the, the Red Sox also did that, but basically took everything the Yankees had a right to and, and stole their dynasty over the last six years. But specifically for this year's Astros team, just totally overwhelming cast characters. I mean, in the ALCS, it was a different group than the guys who did it in the DS. In the DS, it was uh, Jordan Alvarez. It was Jeremy Pena. And then this time around, it was Kyle Tucker and and big performances from Chaz McCormick somehow as as the guy who's just a fill-in for George Springer has, has over an 800 OPS against the Yankees. It, it, and obviously, the big pitching performances were the name of the game for Hughes. Houston uh, from McCullers on down to Verlander. Houston has been remarkable this season in terms of uh, their performances. And they they coasted through the American League playoffs like I thought they would. I didn't think they'd go 7-0, and but I did think that they would coast through the American League playoffs and reach this point. Well, you can make a good argument that the Phillies almost seem to have coasted through the NL part of things. And you want to speak about dominant performances. Let's talk about that man, Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper has been insane this postseason, and we spoke about it. Again, we spoke about this about early July, late June, about Dark Horse World Series contenders, and the Philadelphia Phillies have just been on a roll ever since that point. God, just be Joe Girardi right now. Just be Joe Girardi (laughs) after this run that the Philadelphia Phillies have made. Since taking over a 22-29 and team, Rob Thompson has led this team to the World Series. And this is also a Phillies team that also was in a postseason drought. They hadn't won a series in about a decade. To come into this playoff and not only knock off the Padres, but knock off the Braves, who were leading this division for a good chunk of the latter part of the year, it's an incredible run by this team. And I, I got to let go of like one of my preconceived notions about the Phillies is can they pitch? Can they limit what the other team can do offensively? They show that they can do that, which I think is something that I didn't give them enough credit for. Uh, their rotation of Zach Willer and Noah, although Noah had a bad performance against the Padres in the NLCS, I think that he'll be able to rebound. I, I think they have enough pitching to get by now. They're going to another hitter-friendly park in Houston. So I don't think that this offense is going to be necessarily slowed. In fact, I think this is going to be a fun offensive series between both teams' lineups. I think we're going to see the best of them. It's just really going to come down to who can get stops, who can get the other team out. And you would say the edge would, of course, go to Houston in that respect because you got Verlander, you got Framber Valdez. You have guys that have been in postseason starts. Postseason experience, I think, is going to be another factor that kind of plays into this one. I think it's appropriate that the Astros are the favorites. 
But we always see that team of destiny. This is what's great about October baseball, right? Where legends are made. I'm seeing this Phillies team and they just got a little bit of that magic, which would be unfortunate for the Astros because it's like, why does everyone have magic when we're just trying to win our second title in respectively five years? Yeah, and I, I want to follow up because you mentioned Framber Valdez. Framber Valdez and Christian Javier combined for 12 and a third innings of zero runs against the Yankees. And they're like the third and fourth best pitchers on the Astros because Houston just keeps making the, like Zach Greinke leaves. They just find Jose Urquidy. Garrett Cole leaves, enter Lance McCullers and enter Christian Javier as as stud pitchers because Houston's incredible. You you brushed over something that I want to just touch on so that people realize just how historic of a postseason we're talking about here for Bryce Harper. In three playoff series, Bryce Harper is hitting 411. He has an on-base percentage of 444 thus far in the playoffs. OPS, he has a 1360 OPS. He has a 10-game hit streak, reached base in all 11 games that the Phillies have played so far in the playoffs. This is a ridiculous ridiculously good stretch of baseball Bryce Harper is going on and you can point to the game winning home run in game five you could point to the solo home run that put them over the edge in game one you could point to the two run homer that broke my heart in game four when the Padres had a six to four lead those doubles were impactful those RBIs yeah god I haven't seen a postseason performance like this in a minute and it's coming from a player that has been touted by Sports Illustrated since the age of 16 and Bryce has done nothing wrong in his career aside from being a little bit more outspoken. So to see him having this postseason is nothing short of remarkable. And I'm excited for it. And then you just look at what the Phillies were able to do in the offseason. You just appreciate those moves a little bit more to get a guy like Castellanos, to get Kyle Schwarber. Now those moves are so impactful in this postseason and a big reason why they're there. So you got to give it up to the front office and you got to give it up for the front office to be able to make that move at manager that took balls to move off of Girardi and no one could have saw this coming from them. Serious prediction. We got to get into that point of this preview. How are you feeling about it? Well, the Astros are heavy favorites and it's also baseball. So baseball's random and chaotic. What's fascinating is that like the fifth starter on the Astros, I would have argued is better than the third starter on Philadelphia. And at the same time, Ranger Suarez has had this breakout postseason 27 year old from Venezuela who was a reliever for for three years is all of a sudden the number three starter on Philly and he's I know Philadelphia's had a bunch of like stars in the postseason but it's it's Bryce Harper it's Sacramento's own Reese Hoskins it's Reese Hoskins actually grew up like 15 minutes that way from where I am right now just fun fact so you have Bryce Harper Reese Hoskins JT Realmuto Kyle Schwarber those have been the guys who have stepped up if you're looking for that unsung guy for Philadelphia it's been Ray Ranger Suarez. I'm going to take the probabilities on this one. I'm going to take the Astros to win in six, which means that they would clinch the series on their home field. This this feels like I say this all the time in basketball when we're doing analysis. This feels like an Astros in five and a half type of series, which is whether it's five or six games is semantics. The Astros will kind of cruise through most of the series would be the most probable situation. So I'll take the Astros in six and say that they will clinch the World Series on their home field for the first time in this uh, dynastic run that Houston has been on over the last six to eight years. Not a dynasty until they win a second title. It's not going to happen this year. I'm going with the Philadelphia Phillies in five games. You know what? 
I'm going to go balls to the wall. This Philadelphia's team, they've been going balls to the wall all postseason, and I think it's going to continue into the World Series. They just got that vibe. They just got that feel. They just got that destiny in their mirror, and I I think it's going to happen. I I think that Bryce Harper is going to put himself amongst the elites of all time, but that may be a conversation for another video. Besides that, do you have any moratoriums for the Padres? Uh, I am infinitely grateful for everything that has happened in this postseason. Beating the Dodgers gave me the emotional feel of what I assume a championship will feel like. And I have nothing but gratitude and praise for this incredible moment that the Padres have given me. And again, I know this sounds like a press conference. I am genuinely overwhelmed with the incredible season that the Padres had the first in my lifetime. They had never won a home playoff game uh, in my entire lifetime. 1998 was the last time that happened. So only great things that happened to the Padres, but at the same time, oh, that Bryce Harper home run. Oh, that Bryce Harper home run just stung right in the heart in the eighth inning. We had Josh Hader in the bullpen and didn't bring him in. That one stung, but that's the closest you're going to get to any sadness. I said going in, we're playing with house money. So Nothing but love and praise for the San Diego hometown 619 San Diego Padres coming through with an incredible postseason run. Hopefully Bob Melvin feels the same and I'll also praise them because it means the Dodgers didn't make it to the World Series. They didn't even make it to the NLCS. And now I'll praise the Phillies for knocking out the Padres so we don't have to contemplate that out of the NL West rivalries. Anyway, guys. The Slowbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now. So we have a little bit of a disagreement and it was over something I posted on social media. Mike Trout might finish his career statistically better than Bryce Harper in every single category. But if Bryce leads this Phillies team to a championship as the World Series MVP, he, not Trout, will be the player of their generation. Kyle, what are your thoughts? Well, I think the first part kind of sums it up. If he's better than Bryce Harper in every statistical category, and he won't be better than Bryce Harper in every statistical category, but if he's better than Bryce Harper in every statistical category, Mike Trout was the better player. That seems to be a pretty transparent point there, which I originally, when I sent that to you, I thought that you were going to take a shot at the Angels as a result of that, but then it turned to Bryce Harper would be the generation's greatest player. I'm like, wow, we are living in the moment right now. Now, this is a very like we are on a train where the it's only thing we can see is a built on moments. And Mike Trout has 0.0 moments. What is the signature Mike Trout moment? Uh, that catch he made in Baltimore, probably where he like bounces his hip against the wall. I think You're that's probably the best moment. A game in Baltimore when I just saw Bryce Harper put one in the seats to end your Padre season. Yeah, yeah, that that does count. I I just don't evaluate greatest players of their generations based on moments, I, I suppose. See, when we're talking about great players, and normally I'm not a ring counter, but when we're talking about great players and comparing them amongst each other, championships and postseason moments start to add. And if Mike Trout legitimately goes 20 years and only makes the postseason once, now I know it's not all his fault because baseball is not driven by one single player. But you share some of the blame. You are part of those teams. There's something, some way in the math that's not working out to you being able to capitalize on the moments because it's not like Bryce Harper exactly had a loaded team we thought going into the year. The Phillies were very underrated. They were the third team in their division amongst the Braves and Mets. And yet the Phillies are here. And you would look at what brought them to this point. Well, excellent bats, of course, up and down the order. That helps. But Bryce Harper... 
his postseason that he's having right now, he's literally putting this team on the back. You mentioned the numbers in our World Series breakdown. His plus one point something OPS that he has to this point, the multiple home <laughs> runs, the multiple RBI doubles. If he's able to lead his team to a World Series, and we're still going into this. We don't know if what the result is going to be against the Astros, but if he's able to pull that one off, while being the driving force, it's going to be hard to ignore him whenever we're comparing careers at the end of the day. You are absolutely correct. And and that moment is going to be the thing that resonates because ultimately like sports are fun because of moments and emotional connections. I believe as a sports fan, you should always shoot for emotions and moments like that's the only thing like if you play for a team, your objective should be the most important thing is winning and and the end goal should be to win a championship or personal success or whatever it is. If you're a fan and you don't have like an actual like investment personally in the success or failure of the team, you should just be shooting for moments. So what Bryce Harper's delivered this postseason is moments that even I, when he's doing it to my team, I'm like, oh my God, this is absolutely amazing. It's the greatest postseason run since Randy Arozarena's random postseason in 2020, where he was making $80,000 for the Tampa Bay Rays and hitting 11 homers in the playoffs. But Bryce Harper having that moment is something that resonates with the sports fan and at the same time i'll go back to the same point at the beginning if mike trout is better than him in every statistical category or most of the statistical categories mike trout is the better player than bryce harper because i don't think that two at bats will define a career more than the thousands of repetitions that get put in consistently throughout the seasons i think that it can overweigh that because the weight of those at bats if you never have a meaningful at bat and Mike Trout, at this point, has he had a meaningful at-bat? When sports fans look at who came up in the biggest spots, they're going to look at a guy like Harper, who literally, again, that one swing in particular against the Padres is going to stick in people's minds. But there's been a lot of moments throughout this postseason. And not only that, but Bryce Harper, that's not just any home run. That's also his ninth home run in the postseason. So he's been able to do this throughout multiple years, multiple jerseys. He's shown that he's able to perform in the postseason. So it's not just a fluke. I think part of any great player is being able to have some level of postseason success. And it's not, again, just rings because Barry Bonds, why do we regard Barry Bonds as the best player of his generation? And he never came down with the championship. In the 2002 postseason, you could say, who was a driving force on that team? Clearly Bonds. Everyone's going to remember the tight end home runs that he was hitting against the Angels. It just happened that bullpen decisions cost him a ring, unfortunately. And that happens, but you can look at Bonds and you can look at his postseason numbers and say that it's not Bonds' fault. When it comes to Trout, it's just like, if you go 20 years. Look, look at a guy like Derek Carr, right? Like Derek Carr may oof, very well oof. have a very good <laughs> career in the National that's, that's Football disrespectful. League. Oh, but the fact that, that he so will never make the playoffs, it, it's a little disrespectful. I'm not going to lie, but it's disrespectful to their car. It's also disrespectful to his organization. Similar boats. You know, we talk about the Angels and compare them to like the Raiders. The Angels might be the Raiders of Major League Baseball Oof. in terms of team success over the last yeah. 20 years. They're probably very close if we were actually to run those yeah. numbers on who's been more pitiful as an organization. But Derek Carr will never be regarded as one of the greats, no matter how good of a quarterback he is statistically, unless he's able to get in the postseason and make some noise. Now, he may have more impact on the game as a quarterback than Mike Trout can have as a center fielder and outfielder and a general hitter. And now he's starting to hit that tail end of his career that we don't know what his numbers will turn out in the long run. Harper at least seems to be, when he's healthy on the field, trending in a positive direction in terms of his numbers and production. So let's talk about the numbers. Bryce Harper currently sits at... 285 career home runs, 
versus Mike Trout. Mike Trout is currently sitting at this point today at 350. So he's got him beat by about 50. You could take out some of the injury seasons there for Harper. That's probably one of the big things why he hasn't really caught up to him. He is obviously younger than Mike Trout, so he has a little bit more opportunity to keep going. MVPs, we talk about counting hardware a little bit. So three-time MVP is Mike Trout. You have a two-time MVP in Bryce Harper. Mike Trout, again, I, I just feel like he's going to get hurt on the superlatives. People just haven't seen him in those big spots. Well, at the same time, let's let's talk about some of the other statistics beyond those two, which is Mike Trout's career war is double that of Bryce Harper. Wins above replacement for Mike Trout is sitting at 82. Bryce Harper's sitting at 42 currently. And I know Mike Trout's had a couple extra seasons than Bryce Harper to get those numbers. Mike Trout is has nearly 40 more wins above replacement. And for, for reference for people who don't know, if you're between like 50 and 70, that's a Hall of Fame baseball player is like the the ballpark reference. There are people in the 40s who have gotten in. There are people there. There are a handful of 30s who have gotten in. But for the most part, 50 to 70 wins above replacement is a Hall of Famer. Mike Trout's already at 82 wins above replacement. Mike Trout's OPS plus, which the league average is about 100. He's 178 for his career. Bryce Harper is 148 for his career. So that's a 30 point improvement there. And Mike Trout is one of the greatest defensive players of his generation. And this is not to diminish Bryce. Harper as a player by any stretch of the imagination. They are the two best players at this time uh, for like the era of people who like hit their primes between 28 and 33. Mike Trout's just this great test because there have been players who are all time great who don't make the playoffs consistently. Ken Griffey Jr. made the playoffs like twice in his entire career, but it's rare that this is the undisputed best player in baseball for five to six years. And his team has been so poor. And baseball is the one sport where this can happen because the the value of a great superstar in baseball is not equal to that of a quarterback in football where like Patrick Mahomes, the Chiefs can get rid of Tyran Matthew. They can get rid of Terry Kill. They can get rid of Daniel Sorensen. They can get rid of all of those players that they've gotten rid of over the last two years and still have the number two offense in football. That, that concept just doesn't exist in baseball because one single player can't have the same impact on the sport. One, because they only bat every nine times in the rotation, and also a singular player in baseball. The difference between Mike Trout and Trent Grisham is like one hit every 10 at bats. Like it's such a thin margin within baseball. Not only that, like players just can't have that singular impact. So Mike Trout really tests the case of like, can the greatest player ever come from a team that never makes it? Because eventually the player switches teams. Eventually the player has a situation where the team just messes around and makes the playoffs. And that just hasn't happened for Mike Trout because of one, the Angels ineptitude and two, Mike Trout's just recently signed with the Angels. He likes living in Los Angeles. He's a very low-key guy, and that was just the thing that he wanted to do, and the Angels have failed him at every turn, as you and I have talked about over and over. You describe it as baseball hell, which I would classify as Pittsburgh, but it's kind of the same idea, like that the organization has just failed him at every single turn. Again, why the Angels are baseball hell, for those that don't know my theory, is because hell is based on ironic punishments. What's more ironic than gain two all-time greats in your franchise, in your building, signing all these high-priced veterans who in theory should work, former MVPs, a guy who literally hit 700 home runs this year, but yet you still can't make the postseason. How ridiculous is that? What kind of cosmic <laughs> treadmill is it like to be an Angels fan and have to continuously go through this? This is Homer eating in hell, like keeps getting the donuts, keeps getting the donuts. Oh, you like donuts? Let me just feed them on a conveyor belt. This is the ironic punishment that is being an Angels fan 
You get to see all-time greatness like Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, but you never get to see the greatness of team success that we're seeing with Bryce Harper. And I think that if you're baseball, you almost wish that Mike Trout could have the career right now that Bryce Harper's having in the sense of who's been the more exciting player too? Who's been the poster well, boy for Okay, So, so for this baseball? is the difficult part because this is another part of the change in baseball, even going back to talking about Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez and people from when I was a very, very young child and you were at least old enough to remember the 2002 World Series run is that baseball has become such a region sport that if you don't live in the market where the team is playing, you're probably not watching a whole lot of Mike Trout unless you are one of these super baseball fans who really, really loves following the sport. That the, the casual baseball fan, shall we say, is, is not watching Mike Trout, is not watching Bryce Harper unless they make it to the playoffs. And that's part of the regionalization of the sport is that we see all these numbers for Mike Trout. We see all the highlights yeah. of Mike Trout but we're not actually watching him play baseball. I think I may have misspoke. I meant to say that I think baseball wishes that Mike Trout, what was what Bryce Harper is. You know, we go back to his rookie year. That's a clown question, bro. Everyone's putting that on t-shirts. Iconic moments in the home run derby when he was able to take down the home run derby champion, which is something that's really big in baseball. And one of the big things that fans enjoy and now we're seeing him have this postseason. When we talk about comparing these guys, when their career's all said and done, if I have hardware for Harper and I have multiple MVPs and their numbers kind of look the same at the end of the day, like maybe Bryce is just a tick below, it's going to be hard for me to have Mike Trout above Bryce Harper in the all-time rankings because we always talk about it with Hall of Fame discussions, right? Can you tell the story of the respective sport without such player? One of the big reasons a guy like Philip Rivers is probably not a Hall of Famer for me is because I feel as though there's a lot of Philip Rivers that have come and gone. He's going to go down as more of a stat compiler. Uh, Matt Ryan, I think he's more of a Hall of Famer because he'll have the hardware. He'll have the big game moments, uh, the NFC title games. You're hurting That's my heart. That Don't Rivers, do that to Philip. Don't do that to I gotta Phillip. Do it to Phillip. He played the an AFC that, championship game with a torn ACL. The fact that he's had all these loaded teams and was never able to ascend to anything greater is going to hurt his legacy to me. Again, Trout has had loaded teams. He's had other talent in the building, but I just think that if we're going to get to the point where we're a 15, 20 year career, you got to give me something. You got to give me something more. We're building Mount Rushmore's. Talked about Derek Jeter's career versus each rose. They're probably similar, but at the same time, since Jeter was able to pull down those championships, those meaningful at-bats, his career is just always going to be looked on more favorably, even if so someone is like the better player. I mean, we talk about like the gold glove argument with Jeter all the time, right? Uh, there's probably other better shortstops, but the fact that Jeter had the iconic 360 throw kept him in the gold glove discussion or it's baseball's a little bit of storytelling, a little bit of play. And the fact that Mike Trout hasn't really been able to tell a good story throughout his career, it's like being in a good movie that doesn't really like have a satisfying conclusion. I feel like that's what Mike Trout's career may turn out being. So that part's interesting. And you also said like, if their numbers are comparable, if, if we refer back to the original tweet, you're talking about if Bryce Harper is worse than him in every statistical category was the well, worse original to be point. Like one home run, you know, you're still technically worse in a certain yeah, category. I'm just Bryce Harper will never catch Mike Trout in war. There's going to be a huge gap. There. There's going to be a huge gap in OPS plus there's going to be a huge gap in defense. I mean, even there's going to be a huge gap in home runs probably at the end of their career and runs batted in and Mike Trout's going to get three thousand hits I mean, Kershaw and might have better numbers than Verlander but because Verlander was able to come up bigger in the postseason at least one postseason run in 2017 where he was four and one 
I'm going to look more favorably on Verlander's career than I will look at Kershaw's career. That's kind of a personal evaluation thing because you can plug numbers into a computer and get an answer and and that will tell you who the best player of all time is. I think that's what a lot of people are doing with Mike Trout. Now they have memories that they enjoy watching with Mike Trout. It's just, it's not exactly the same. And I guess for me, when it comes to the whole like, he doesn't have moments situation, it's like, it's not his fault. It's not his fault. It's not his fault. Just because seasons keep going on, it doesn't make it any more his fault. Nothing's changing. Your fault for only so long. Like at a certain point, that just feels like an excuse. Fair or not, it it just feels like an excuse. My question would be, what's changing? Is it just that time is going on? Because the circumstances haven't changed. The Angels have brought in different players. They've spent different resources. They have Shohei Otani now. We saw the Guardians in the postseason this year. The Guardians team we thought was tanking. You're telling me you can't. We saw the playoffs expand. Mm -hmm. And again, is is this just purely an organization? What if we really analyze these home runs? Is it easier to hit home runs when you're 20 games back in the standings and no one gives a shit? Or is it harder to hit those home runs whenever it matters? Bryce, you know, here in this eighth inning, you're down a run and you need to put one in the bleachers. Sometimes not having a pressure environment, it's easier to coast your career. It feels like he's coasting. It feels like that signing, that extension he signed with the Angels is him saying, I'm satisfied with a mediocre ending to my career because the well, yeah, but that's, that's a team. damned if that's a damned if you do damned if you don't situation because if he goes to another team it's going to be like oh look at you coasting along with this team but if you play with the angel like that's a damned if you do damned if you don't situation See, i just i, I feel I think like that- though bryce kind of rebuked that when he signed with the phillies because now he's over there leading the charge for this phillies team yes but it took four years of missing the like bryce harper hasn't been to the playoffs in five seasons and it, in a non-mike trout world that's a really long playoff drought like Bryce Harper would be classified with the group of like, hey, this guy doesn't make the play. But it doesn't matter in baseball. Baseball's the one sport where no matter how much money little. you spend on a player, one player can't turn the tides for you. And this has always been the case. It's just the best players of this generation happen to not be because also the gap is widening between the haves and have nots in baseball. Like the, the difference between teams at the bottom and teams at the top has never been wider than it has been. I think since like the 1970s, it's interesting that conversation because Bryce Harper hasn't been to the playoffs in a long ass time. And the first time he gets there, he delivers the one year moment that for you puts it over the top is just the one, give me one postseason run and that will get it. One postseason run for Mike Trout. I just need to see that he can do it. Not turning in the assignment, it just won't be good enough when I'm evaluating his entire totality of his career. I need to at least see that he could do it, and it was purely the Angels that let him down. I need but, to see him the postseason. We know it's the Angels that, that let him down. You and I both know that's the case. There's the, the evidence doesn't tell us that there's anything other than this is the Angels' fault. And just because it keeps going on year after year doesn't change the fact it would be nice to change the the conversation to like well the one consistent is mike trout but no we we know the evidence is that it's the angels fault it's the angels ineptitude and have failed and have failed him at every turn that's the reason that this has happened and just because it's gone on long enough doesn't mean it's trout goes down if he goes down today retires it's over for mike trout his postseason batting line will be 083 267 Mm -hmm. ops and a 0.33 slug. But that's one for 12. That's, that's one, that for, is 12. one for 12. But it, it, that would be the only <laughs> reference point of Mike Trout as a postseason player, Mike Trout and clutch moments, Mike Trout when the games matter. And that would be an indictment on him. 
if again Bryce number the number Bryce Harper the numbers are somewhat comparable and Bryce has this run this run is is world changing for Bryce Harper I I don't think a singular postseason run can do that I don't think it's physically possible Madison Bumgarner if it wasn't for the postseason he would be just a bum Madison Bumgarner (laughs) would be a bum if it wasn't for his postseason success like oh yeah it's going to help it's going to help his hall of fame yes the fact where we can even talk about madison bumgarner as a hall of fame level player despite that he didn't really even have the longevity or the counting stats are not going to look great but i can look at those three postseasons in fact that one postseason where legitimately he put the Giants on his back. <laughs> the rotation for the Giants was awful. The this <laughs> Phillies batting order is since being sensational this postseason. But Bryce, his impact is felt. His impact is felt in every single one of these games. Putting that in a historical context, like he did the other day, of he's outperforming a postseason Ryan Howard. It it, it really oh kind by of, far by encapsulates- far that this is more than just a flash in the pan. And if the Phillies come down with hardware and again, he's the world series MVP. If I'm building a Mount Rushmore, I would have Bryce ahead of Mike Trout. So I think that's true. I think we can put postseason performances within the context to elevate the career of a player. It just doesn't have to come at the expense of a player who, again, is is clearly better than him in most statistical categories. I think if both we're of talking those about rankings, man, you it, rankings are very simple. You have to put one <laughs> ahead of the other. It may not be your preferred system, but we all do it. Yeah. That we always have internally a one, two, three. Some people have a one B. Some people do the tiers. <laughs> but it doesn't. Yeah, you're right. But it doesn't make it true. It doesn't. It, it just makes it so that it's true for someone else. It doesn't necessarily I, go along with the evidence. My grandkids 50 years from now, who would I rather have? Bases loaded, game seven, <laughs> World <laughs> Series. It would probably Bryce Harper because I know he could do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I would say no, but just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean that it can't happen. But the, but also that's just this is the like evidence into tells the religion of Mike Trout. It's not necessarily that it's a religion. It's like I suspect that if he got the opportunity, it would look something like that. If you gave him, say, Jose Altuve levels of postseason at bats, Mike Trout would probably have a pretty incredible resume when it comes to playoff baseball. I just don't have the evidence that confirms nor denies it, but that doesn't subtract from Mike Trout's career because, again, it's not Mike Trout's fault. None of it is Mike Trout's You're fault. You're chasing Sasquatch here, man. You're chasing a big foot. You're chasing no, a Yeti. No, you're correct, and I don't need it in order to look at Mike Trout and say Mike Trout has been the best player in baseball for five to six years on an unprecedented level. All of his statistics are beyond even the greatest of greats that you can point to. He he beat Jeff Bagwell, who's a Hall of Famer. He beat his career war in six seasons. Like Mike Trout is so far and away the best player, or he was, he's not anymore, but he was for so many years far and away the best player in baseball. And it, it's something that he's the first player of my generation, of course, and Bryce Harper's right there with him where they both came in the league right around the time when I was really starting to get into sports as like a 9, 10, 11 year old. So this is like the first generation of baseball players where I've seen their entire careers play out. And we have data that tells us, even though I can't speak for players who were born before me, we have evidence that suggests that within the context of the last 10 years, uh, Mike Trout is far and away the best player in baseball. And again, to your original tweet, if he finishes with 
better statistics than Bryce Harper in every measurable category. End of conversation. He is a better player. There is nothing that Bryce Harper could do postseason assignment. A whole picture, though. I I need the whole story. Yes, I think you're correct, and I think that when we're talking about the statistics being what they are, Bryce Harper can have an incredible postseason run like he's having totally unprecedented, except for when Randy Rosarena did it for some weird reason a couple years ago. Yes, Bryce Harper can elevate his own career, and also it won't be enough to overcome the statistical gap that he and Mike Trout possess. Because again, Bryce Harper is probably a first ballot Hall of Famer. I would assume if not first ballot, he'll get in on the second ballot, like kind of like what Trevor Hoffman had a couple years ago. Like Bryce Harper is incredible. I feel as though we're having the same disagreement that baseball fans are having all over the world of stat sheets versus what you can see with your eyes. And I feel as though the fact that I can point to tangible evidence with Bryce Harper is enough for me to say that if he gets it done, if I have that image of Bryce Harper leading the charge to a World Series team, then that's enough for me to leapfrog him over because analytics, analytics, it's it's tangible evidence at a certain point. Well, it's tangible evidence that you can see in the postseason when you're watching. Like, Mike Trout has thousands of baseball games of evidence to, that you can watch you can see what he also happened. Has it's thousands of meaningless games in the grand scheme of things but if those games are meaningless and baseball playoff games are incredibly meaningful which by the way they are like the stakes on regular season baseball is nothing and the stakes on postseason baseball is everything it's why the sport is has an awesome playoffs and an irrelevant regular season that doesn't mean that the regular season games are totally irrelevant in terms of magnifying like the players themselves it just means they have no stakes to them but it doesn't mean that that's also not where you make your money and where the the baseball players are playing again 162 of these baseball games compared to Bryce Harper who's had an 11 game really really good stretch like we have not just a thousand we have thousands of games of sample size for what these two players are and I would point to that as being a more tried and true evaluation of who the best is uh, compared to Trout and Harper's postseason statistics and like you said in the original tweet if Mike Trout finishes better than Bryce Harper in every statistical category. I think that those thousands of games, literally thousands, represent a better sample size compared to the incredible postseason run by Bryce Harper, which will elevate his career, just not to the level of we will throw out thousands of games of statistics in order to make you the best player of your generation. All right. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. So Carolina Panthers traded away Christian McCaffrey and with an interim coach, no more McCaffrey, no more Robbie Anderson, turning down two first round picks for Brian Burns. Any player on the team could be traded by the time this video comes out. Carolina Panthers with PJ Walker, XFL legend PJ Walker put up a 21 to three victory over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who are currently three and four. And also first place in the NFC South, because even though Tampa has had a catastrophic start to their season, the NFC South has provided no alternatives in terms of teams that will prevent them from winning the NFC South. So Juju, I turn it over to you. What do you make of everything that's going on uh, in Tampa Bay thus far? I make that I'm very confused by it, but I'm wondering what I should be confused about. Because I look at the Tampa Bay Bucks and I ask myself, What is the biggest issues with this team? 
And I'm guessing the offensive line has to be the biggest pressing need for them in terms of fixing this roster or trying to fix it. But the problem is you, you usually don't find starting caliber offensive linemen on the NFL trade market. So I don't see that getting any better for them. I don't know if Tom has enough juice to be able to get Gronk to unretire. So that's a big problem for the team not having his presence. Is it Tom being broken? Is is Tom washed? That, I guess that's the biggest question that people are going to be asking. After seeing that throw to Mike Evans, it's hard for me to say that Tom ability-wise has fallen off. He clearly still has arm talent to be able to make the necessary throws. And I think that he's been able to do that. He threw 49 times in that game against the Panthers. You're changing over the coaching staff, um, at least Bruce Arians at the top. And while I know the leftwich took more control of play calling, Bruce Arians, him not being in that sideline, I'm sure has a little bit of an impact. I, I think that we kind of underrated that stuff early on. And now we're starting to see that really come to fruition because we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that they struggled offensively against the Panthers because they've been struggling for weeks anyway. I think that a loss against the Panthers like they did, this three point performance that they had just kind of recontextualizes just how bad the Bucks' offensive struggles have been. Yeah, and offensive line is going to be the biggest concern there. Uh, I, I agree with you. Not to say that the receiving court isn't absolutely decimated for Tampa because Gronk retired. Cameron Brait went down with the injury last week that looked pretty gruesome. I'd, I actually didn't follow up on what his injury status was. I just kind of felt like he wasn't going to be back for a while. The, the second leading receiver for the Buccaneers was a guy named Cade Otten this week, which again, like it's just a made up person. That's just like Cyril Grayson. Cade Otten is just a made up person in that roster. And obviously they had Godwin. They had Evans back. Leonard Fournette went out. It's just it's been a cavalcade of injuries. But I think also the thing that we should bring up and this is why I think like their struggles aren't as surprising to me, which is Tom Brady doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be there. He retired to go to Miami. He got Bruce Arians fired. Tom Brady does not want to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's going to leave after 2023, possibly continue his career, possibly not. He simply does not want to be there. Oh, uh, so are you accusing Tom Brady of sabotaging their season? I'm not saying he's sabotaging their season. Well, I'm saying it's are. hard to be. No, I'm the conclusion I'm drawing is it's hard to be invested when you don't want to actually be there, like when you are not happy in the position that you are, it's hard to invest in a team that already has these other problems that we talked about. It's not that he's actively doing malicious stuff to make their season worse. It's just the same thing. If you've I mean, I've read the book by Seth Wickersham about the Patriots that last year in New England he was basically saying, what the F am I doing every time he was trying to fight back from injury and he had a worse QBR than Mitchell Trubisky and he felt like the offense wasn't working in his favor. And I'm seeing all the same patterns happen now, except we have the context because he left New England and again, actively retired and his condition of coming back was that the coach got fired. And I think he just would have been better off if playing at all this year, he would have been better off just going to another team. It's just, it's hard to get yourself up and invest when you know that you don't actually want to be with the team that you're playing for. And you're already thinking about where your next move is going to be. So what should Tom Brady do or what should he have done? Well, what should he have done was not sign that two-year extension after winning the Super Bowl. 
because he would have given him the flexibility to walk away after the fallout with Bruce Arians and the power struggle between them that ultimately led to Bruce Arians getting fired as a condition of Tom Brady's reinstatement. It seems like he would have been happier had he retired. I don't know exactly what this season is doing to him mentally because I'm not Tom Brady. I don't understand the whole psychology of going through a divorce, retiring and unretiring, not wanting to play for the team that, you know, at 45 years old, it's it's already fallen apart physically. And just the idea of being a 45 year old quarterback, it's hard for me to put myself in the perspective of Tom Brady. I just have the evidence that says, hey, he doesn't want to play in Tampa. He retired to go play in Miami. And then when he came back, he's just like, "Ah, I guess I kind of have to go back to Tampa now contractually. Yeah, but there's a lot of people that wake up and go to jobs that they don't like, but still perform admirably. Are you accusing them of basically quiet quitting? Is that the phrase that's getting thrown around on LinkedIn these days? Um, It's not quiet quitting. It's that having an incredibly deep and strong offensive line and just being able to sign Gronk and Antonio Brown makes your life a whole lot easier at 43 and 44. And when you take away that safety blanket... It's not going to look as pretty. It's not like Tom Brady's been like catastrophically terrible this year. It's not like he's been Jacoby Brissett level numbers. He's just been a below average NFL quarterback, which, by the way, is what Tom Brady was that last year in New England when he had his falling out with the Patriots. It's just really difficult to play football when you don't want to be in the situation that you're in. It's a little different in this respect in 2019. With the Patriots, we can point to those skill position players on the outside for Brady and legitimately say that those guys were pretty awful, right? That was Nikhil Harry in his rookie year. That was, I think they had Jacoby Myers maybe there. Maybe they had a Braxton Berrios. Receivers like that. Guys (laughs) who are Philip Dorsett. That that was a lot of the Patriots receivers towards the tail end. I, I think that it's important to still say he does still have Godwin. He still does have Evans. And when Evans lets him down like he did today with that drop, that's, that's going to be an all-timer drop for Mike Evans because that that was wrap him in a blanket, put him away. He still has those players. It, it just flipped. Uh, and now you look at the offensive line versus the Patriots offensive line in 2019. We always accredited Tom Brady with his ability to do more with less. And now I still feel as though losing Gronk isn't nothing. Losing three starting centers before the season even starts isn't nothing. There are reasons to be concerned. I, I just don't think you could look at the Bucs, and I picked them very early on as my Super Bowl team. They'll probably still win the South. I, I think that that's obvious, right, that they should still win the South in theory because despite the Panthers beating them, we know the Panthers aren't a better team. The Panthers have no recourse to get better towards the tail end of the season because they literally are on their third quarterback. They traded away their biggest offensive weapon and their defense can't carry them unless they just have a Philadelphia Phillies type run in them in terms of firing a head coach and moving <laughs> to the interim guy. Uh, you look at the Atlanta Falcons. I like Arthur Smith and what they're doing there. I like their ability to run the ball, but Marcus Mariota, we agree, is a limited quarterback. Their defense has been hit or miss, although they had an opportunity to come back on the Buccaneers early in the season. And then in New Orleans, they have a whole mess going on of what do we do with Andy Dalton, Jameis Winston? Either way, they don't have a quarterback that they really trust at all. They have improved playmakers for them on the outside. Their defense is still good, but has fallen off, has regressed. I think it's important to note that the New Orleans Saints defense 
isn't the Saints defense that you advertise coming into the year. They are not playing at that same level. In fact, they've been burned yeah. multiple times in the secondary. So there's no clear challenger in division. So now we start looking around the NFC. Uh, the NFC has been a mismatch of teams. You, you look at the Eagles, who are probably the truest team in terms of success and being able to week in, week out, give you a consistent level performance. Uh, the Buccaneers might match up well from them based off what they're able to do defensively. It's just, can they figure out what they are able to do offensively? The Niners, I don't know what to make of the Niners after their performance against the Chiefs. Uh, the defense that was dominating people four weeks through came back and just allowed 40 points pretty much unanswered by Patrick Mahomes. And then you look at the Packers. I mean, the Packers are on this three-game losing streak. I should mention the Minnesota Vikings first, but the Minnesota Vikings are coasting to the nfc north title the packers who will be in that wild card hunt <laughs> the packers have just as many question marks as the bucks yeah so this is the interesting part about that because again I'll, I'll point out the the average qbr for an nfl starting quarterback is about 90 tom brady has a 93 this year so he's playing above average he's ranked 14th in qbr that the people he's equal to are jared goff kirk cousins and Justin Herbert with torn rib cartilage. That's that's what Tom Brady's playing at. This so let's year. talk about the expectations here because, okay, if they're on a course to be the number four seed, be the division winner of the NFC South, at the five seed right now, that it's would be Dallas. the Giants, right? Oh, well, yeah. The Giants are only at their six and one mark, and the Giants are going to be at the hunt. At this point, it's inevitable. The Giants will probably be in the postseason worst as a seven seed just because they let's let's assume it's Dallas. It let's assume Dallas will have a better record than the Giants at the end of the season. That feels like a safe bet, not a guaranteed bet, but a safe bet that the Cowboys will have a better record at the end of the year than the Giants. OK, against Dallas, we saw how that matchup played out in week one. Buccaneers defense whomped. <laughs> the Dak led Dallas Cowboys offense, albeit Dak, of course, suffered his injury in that game. So we know that they can at least win that matchup. We know that that's something. Let's assume in the case of the Giants, let's say the Giants were able to get there. Limited offense. So if you're the Buccaneers defense, that's an opportunity for you to take advantage of the limited Giants offense. Um, and defensively, they might cause issues based off these early season results we're seeing from the Buccaneers but you should be able to get the slight edge in that game based off that. So they might be able to at least win a playoff game. Okay, we get into the second round, right? If they are, in fact, the four seed, and let's assume, let's go chalk. Let's say all the division winners win in wildcard weekend, which won't happen, but we'll, let's say that happens. Then they would go into this matchup against the Philadelphia Eagles. Can they win that fun. matchup? It'd be fun. I think Philadelphia matched up against an elite defense would be great. And Tampa is an elite defense. They have a really, really good defense and they have an average offense. Who does that sound like? San Francisco. And the thing I've been saying all year is how ironic is it that Jimmy Garoppolo is doing Tom Brady better than Tom Brady right now, which is kind of funny that that's how that worked out because the 49ers are, they both have average offenses. The 49ers just have a better defense than what Tampa Bay has. And both of them are really great defenses. We'll it's see. just... We'll see. I mean, I haven't seen the Buccaneers defense allow 40 like the Niners did today. Tampa is a really, really good team defensively, and their offense is about average. And again, you could bet on the correction of what Tampa is, but this is closer to what Tampa is than 
that Super Bowl run in 2020. Like that season, Tampa was the third best team in the NFC. They they were not as good as the Packers and they were not as good as the Saints. And I know they beat both of them in the playoffs. They were just crazy aberrations that they ended up winning those games. That still drives me insane. Wait, they had an results. incredible doesn't matter. They, look, they had an incredible second half of the season, blah, blah, blah. Like Tampa, the first half of the year with Tom Brady and last year's team and this year's team is closer to what this Tampa team is, which is a very good, not elite team in the NFL. And they are a team that this year I point to them and say they're in that group of the second tier, which is the very good, the playoff teams. They do some things very well and there are clear shortcomings on the team. And I, I think that Tampa is a team that for myself is a tier below San Francisco and Philadelphia and also is going to win a lot of games this season in the regular season, get either the third or fourth seed, depending on, you know, semantics and probably tiebreakers and stuff. Every little loss like this is going to make the schedule a little bit weirder for Tampa going forward. Do you see this offense breaking out at any point, or you think this is just kind of what the Tampa Bay offense is the rest of the season? I don't think Tampa is going to have a game where they go for 42 points like they did against the Falcons or they did against, uh, I think it was, who was it? I think it was Detroit a couple years ago. Uh, who is that team that they played like right after they came so out? So a couple years, perform- a couple years ago, performance to clarify, because against the Falcons, obviously they only scored 21, uh, a couple. Oh so, yeah. The, 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 it was, uh, I think it was Detroit a couple years ago. They came out of their bye week and re- remember when they won the Super Bowl, they, they had their bye week and then they went eight. No, for the rest of the season, right after the bye week, I think they played Detroit and scored 35 points in the first half. Like, it's not going to look like that where they just, they're not going to do what the Bengals did to the Falcons this week. Their offense is not that level of explosive, Um, but it's going to be good enough to get them by. And I think, uh, I think San Francisco is the best comp you're going to find for what Tampa is this year, which is an offense that struggles to get 20 points. So looking through their schedule, there's not really a soft landing spot in terms of a stretch of games to get their offense right. Because they played the Ravens next week. Ravens secondary has been shoddy at points this season, but I don't think they're bad enough to say they're an easy matchup for the offense for the Buccaneers to start getting things going. They played the Rams after that. They faced the Seahawks. Again, bad defense, but the Seahawks have found a little magic in the bottle. I think we've started to hit the point in the season two where we can't just sleep on what the Seahawks are doing. The Browns still well-constructed defensively. They still can pose issues. The Saints, we know what that defense has done to Tom Brady in the past. I don't see any reason for that to necessarily change. Niners, if they can get right, the Niners are part of their schedule. Bengals, who have just been locked down in the second half of games, that defense has been one of the better underrated stories in the league. Cardinals have an opportunity. Panthers have an opportunity. And Falcons. So I will say, okay, that would be it, right? Soft landing part of their schedule. If they can get right, stay in playoff contention, win your division, Start getting right by the time you face the Cardinals late December. Then you have the opportunity to mistake your wrong and play well against this Panthers team end of season and do the same against the Falcons. So they have an opportunity to actually build momentum heading into the playoffs. That's actually something that I think shouldn't be slept on in terms of can this offense fix itself. It just over this next five games, I don't see an offense that's necessarily going to be in rhythm. I, I see a lot of matchups that compose different types of faults for them. That may be one of the big talking points in terms of Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. 
I, you say like getting it fixed. I don't think there's anything to fix. I think this is this is what it is at this point. It's not three points against the Panthers, but again, if Mike Evans catches that touchdown, it's ten points. It's seventeen points. Who knows you, what happens after that? You could that. do more. You clearly can do more because again, this is the points they've can been they? able to put up throughout. Can you they? you have to think that you can do more based off. Again, you still have solid skill position players in Evans and Godwin. You still have a running back at Leonard Fournette, and you still do have Tom Brady. The offensive line is questionable, but you should still be able to put up more than 19, 20, 12, 31 against the Chiefs in comeback mode, 21 man, against the I Falcons. Don't, Juju, I don't, I don't think Steelers, so, man. 21 against the Panthers. So. I don't think they can do it. I don't think that's this team. You don't team. think they can be more than a 21-point-per-game team? No, I don't think so. And again, scoring is down. This is the second lowest scoring output since 2000 in the NFL across the league. Like everyone's offense is down compared to past seasons because of the way defenses are playing too high safeties and daring you to run and throw short and intermediate more often. So 21 this year is not the same as 21 in the past couple of years. But at the same time, no, I, I I don't think Tampa's that team. I think Tampa's a team that's going to scrape to get 20 points a game. And the strength of their team is going to be winning those 17 to 14 type of slugfests, which they can do because their defense is better than most of the defenses in the NFL. I, I, I genuinely think not the Panthers game. I think the past few weeks is closer to what the team is. And I know that's weird because it's a Tom Brady team, but the evidence over a not huge sample size, but a relatively good sample size of seven yeah, games. We're suggests, at seven games. We, we know what, yeah, we, we know more or less we're not, where the team stands. We're not going to get, we're not going to get much better evidence unless the team totally like changes on a dime and everyone gets healthy and they sign someone or trade for someone like, yeah, I, I don't think that's this team. I think this is an average offense that fights to get 17 to 20 points a game it's it's an average offense that's built on their strong defense and again i think that the 49ers do it better than they do it in terms of like their roster construction and doing that style of having a really good defense and an offense that just gets them by i think the 49ers do it better than the tampa bay buccaneers do it and that's kind of the the territory that tampa finds themselves in these guys are on fire let's hear more second quarter starts now uh, who do you expect to be the starter once Mac Jones is healthy? Yeah, well, we'll see how that process is. Mac still wasn't able to play yesterday, so um, you know we'll continue to evaluate him and you know see how he's doing physically. Kyle, it's another week in the NFL, so it's time to overreact to a backup quarterback playing above his skis. Bailey Zappi is the latest person to get the Cooper Rush treatment, and we saw Cooper Rush come back down to earth. But Bailey Zappi, is he the next Tom Brady? People are asking this question. Kyle Ledbetter, what say you? No. Okay, definitive. I like it. Strong in the conviction. I just, I like my odds. I like my odds on saying no. <laughs> Are you 10 toes down on this take? Yes, I like my odds. I think it's, I mean, I'm not saying it's a guarantee. I'm saying that the odds are so significantly in my favor that I, I like the chances of my take coming true. I guess it's really my mistake in saying the next Tom Brady, considering that would require you to win seven Super Bowl rings. How about, let's say, the next Andy Dalton? Probably not. That would be my guess. Okay, so I we got to lower the standard even more. Okay, okay. Uh, let's see. The next Mike Glennon? Sure. Yes. <laughs> let's go with that. <laughs> Maybe we can get a Matt Castle. Matt Castle started, you know, a whole season. Well, 
that let bad? me uh okay i think that's maybe let's more point realistic. to a um to another western kentucky quarterback who in week six of the nfl season happened to take the league by storm i'm talking of course about mike white of course for those of you who may or may not know mike white from the same school as bailey zappy both of them white backup quarterbacks who came in in the afc east teams in the doldrums and gave a spark to their seasons that will ultimately i mean probably not make the playoffs but for the patriots sake they have a better chance than the 2021 jets i think Bailey Zappi is better than Mike White. That I can confirm. Whoa, you're talking about the Mike White, the beat down on the eventual AFC champion Cincinnati Bengals. We will not have any Mike White besmirchment on this podcast, Kyle. I'm just saying, where's Mike White now? Where Where is he at? I, I legitimately asked that question. Is he still in New York? I don't know. I know I think Joe Flacco's so. there. Maybe. I don't know. In terms of Bailey Zappi, I will say, like, he has a hundred passer rating each of the first three games of the season. New England's is two and one in those games. They're three and three altogether. Is it that Bailey Zappi is actually a capable NFL quarterback on the fringes? Possibly. Is it possible that the Patriots' three wins this season have been against teams that have a combined five total victories? Maybe it's that. I don't know. Like, New England has overachieved to expectations because they have not had a top. 20 offense since the last Super Bowl season uh-huh. in 2018. But that's where the debate gets interesting. They haven't had a top 20 offense. Well, one of those years was started by Mac Jones. Mac Jones, currently on the men, had a high ankle injury. And Bailey Zappi, according to many Bostonites, Bostonians, whatever you identify yourself as, got on the Bailey Zappi train pretty early on. And Bailey Zappi, obviously... College career, not even comparable to Mac Jones in the sense of the impact of his play on the team's results. Alabama national champion versus, as you mentioned, Western Kentucky. A lot of great gaudy stat lines he was able to put up out there in the same way that Mike White was able to put great gaudy stat lines out for Western Kentucky. But not the same impact in the game as whenever you're throwing for the Alabama Crimson Tide. Granted, you also do get to throw to consistently five-star wide receivers. When we get to the pros, it, things start to even out a little bit. It's Everyone's on the same level. Everyone's getting paid. Some people are getting paid a little bit more. Some people are getting paid a little bit less. Bailey Zappi, he's not getting paid nearly as much as Mac Jones, but Mac Jones isn't getting paid a lot either because he's on a rookie deal. That's what Mac Jones is. Yeah. Mac Jones isn't a made man. I think that's part of why this conversation is even happening. Now, you were talking about analysis from friend of the podcast, Blake Jude who had these guys only separated by a couple letter grades in his draft analysis. You want to talk about that, Kyle? Yeah, so Blake Jude and I had this running joke in 2021. And the 2021 draft informed myself where I'm like, I don't really like doing the prognosticating thing with quarterbacks because I spent like six weeks yelling into the universe about how are people trying to make me take crazy pills and tell me that Mac Jones is better than Justin Fields. Like, I feel like everyone's trying to make me a crazy person. and. NFL so far to this point, maybe. But but that's the thing. It's not fun to do the projection because like Mac Jones ends up on the Patriots. Justin Fields ends up on the Bears. And as soon as that happened, I'm like, ah, shit, they're going to ruin Justin Fields career. Literally on draft day, I said, ah, shit, the Bears are going to ruin Justin Fields. And lo and behold, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And Mac Jones has reached an incredibly stable foundation. He was a solid quarterback last year. He made the Pro Bowl because six quarterbacks before him declined the invitation. And so that. Yeah, I mean, he was pro-ready, but the the Patriots' offense wasn't good last year. And I I said that they haven't had a top-20 offense since 2018, the Super Bowl season. That means they had 
I, I mean, I vaguely I, these aren't exactly correct because I don't remember them off the top of my head anymore, but they were 21st in 2019. I remember that they were the 21st ranked offense. I believe they were 25th the Cam Newton year and 22nd last year. And then you've flipped Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi, according to DVOA on Football Outsiders. The Patriots have the 22nd ranked offense in the NFL this season, exactly the same as last year, uh, despite the fact that they've like switched Devontae Parker with Nikhil Harry. And because they both wear number one, I get confused used every now and again which one is which but they basically brought back the same offense half the time Mac Jones half the time Bailey Zappi it wasn't like Mac Jones was lighting it up before he got hurt to start the season so like half the time it's been him that's that's where we are where we are right now with this debate yeah and and the only defense I have for Mac Jones is he was a first round pick But Blake Jude, as you mentioned, Blake Jude had a third round grade on Mac Jones coming out of the 2021 draft. And something he did after the fact was he included position bonuses. So acknowledging like Mac Jones is a third round prospect and also third round prospects get drafted in the first round. He had Kenny Pickett in a similar vein. He was his number three quarterback and none of his quarterbacks were graded as first round guys. But he knew that one of them was going to get picked in the first round and it happened to be Pickett instead of Malik Willis. So like positionally, it's not saying he like if we're doing all else being equal, he would have been a third round quarterback, but quarterbacks are so valuable that sometimes they get overdrafted. So Blake Jude had Mac Jones as a third round quarterback, early third round to to defend it. And then he had Bailey Zappi as a late fifth round guy last year coming out of the draft. I think it was like his eighth or ninth ranked quarterback at the end of uh, the whole draft process. So they aren't that dissimilar. And uh, you mentioned Cooper Rush. The only difference between the controversy of Cooper Rush is that Dak Prescott's really, really good at quarterback. We all know Dak Prescott's really, really good at quarterback, and there's no scenario in which they would go to Cooper Rush, although Cooper Rush is a very nice backup to have, and I assume Bailey Zappi will be that too. So Mike Florio, he was talking about the quarterback situation, and he presented this quote. There's a belief that Jones isn't thrilled with that arrangement. Talk about the way the offense is currently constructed under Matt Patricia. There's also talk that Judge, Joe Judge, has become an advocate for Zappi that would help explain Belichick's reluctance to proclaim that Jones will still be the starter when healthy. Hearing that, what's your interpretation? You know the old saying, if you have two quarterbacks, you have no quarterbacks. I think that's kind of what we're talking about here with the Patriots right now. Because if the Patriots were lighting it up and they had two good quarterbacks, that'd be fantastic. And I know Bailey Zappi has like 111 passer rating the last three games and they blanked the Lions and all that stuff. But they still have the 22nd ranked offense in the NFL, despite Bailey Zappi putting up those ridiculous numbers, which tells you kind of the state of the Patriots offense at this point. So it, <laughs> why, it might why be, it be like if you do damned if you don't. I had the Cleveland DST. I'm thinking... Okay, they're running out Bailey Zappi. I have an opportunity to get some easy points out there. No, no. Instead, he puts up this stat line, 24 for 34, 309 yards, two passing touchdowns, and his passer rating was 118.4. Another thing, too, is that Bailey Zappi, he's seeming to be fine just being a piece of this offense, right? And I think that that's part of where this kind of this disagreement between Mac Jones and the coaching staff, because it seems like Mac Jones is starting to try and play outside of his particular skill set. In the early part of the season, he's throwing interceptions up like he's Matthew Stafford. We get into this point where now he gets to ride the bench a little bit. His backup comes in and his backup's not going above and beyond, but he is not turning the ball over, which a stringent old school coaching staff, like what Bill Belichick and the Patriots have there, do your job. Not turning the ball over is a powerful thing to do in itself. Just don't be an idiot. 
Just don't go outside of yourself. And, you know, it sucks, too, for Mac, because you would say the game he did get hurt, the game against Baltimore, yeah, they would eventually go on to lose that game. But that game, he was lighting it up. (laughs) He he hit Devontae Parker on multiple deep balls and was actually having a really good game. I believe he even had a decent little scramble in that. What do you do? Like, okay, let's say you go out there. You're going in this game against the Bears. I think the Patriots are better than the Bears, but the Bears, they can still win. They're that type of team that they're not good, but don't sleep on them. They're still a pro team. They still can occasionally knock you off. They knocked out the Niners in week one. Listen, maybe this is just me trying to rationalize and get over that week one defeat, but the Bears can sneak up on you. They have a well-coached defense with Eberflus, even if their offense is a little bit of a mess. Bailey Zappi could theoretically struggle against that defense. It's not inconceivable that he could have a bad day against that defense. But if he has a good day, goes out there and lights the world on fire, again, it's not like Mac Jones is a made guy. 100%. Like, this, it's it's reasonable to say the difference between Bailey Zappi and Mac Jones is not that significant. And by the way, like, in defense of Mac Jones, like, playing the Dolphins, the Steelers, and the Packers sucks a lot more than playing the Lions and Cleveland and Chicago. Like, obviously, there's a difference there as well. But, like, the most damning indictment where I'm like, I know I'm not taking crazy pills on Mac Jones is Mac Jones had a national champion offense, and he finished third on his own team in the Heisman voting. Devonta Smith won the Heisman in 2020. Najee Harris finished fourth. Like he finished third on his own team in the Heisman. Do you know how hard it is for a quarterback to finish third on his own team on a national champion team in Heisman voting? That's just absolutely unheard. Like Mac Jones is a four-star prospect. He was the third string at Bama. He had opportunities to transfer. He did the what Gardner Minshew's initial plan was, which Gardner Minshew was going to transfer to Bama and then begin a coaching role afterwards. And then Tua got hurt and Mac Jones took over the team and they were still in waiting for Bryce Young to get there. So he had one year with obviously Najee Harris, Devonta Smith and Jalen Waddle, where they won the championship in a defense that had five first rounders on it during the pandemic. So like Mac Jones is fine. Mac Jones is fine. The difference between him and Bailey Zappi is there. Mac Jones has proven he's a capable quarterback for five years until the team gets bored of him and then moves on to another quarterback. Like he's capable as an NFL starter and he's probably better than Bailey Zappi. Although the only reason I'm saying that is he was drafted higher than Bailey Zappi and I don't have a representative sample size on Bailey Zappi yet. Who do you think would be closer to, at bare minimum, a Kirk Cousins? Oh, Mac Jones for sure. Between the two of them. But again, I don't have a representative sample size on Bailey Zappi. I'm saying that after three games, or really two games, he's only started two games. We still don't know what Bailey Zappi is. At Oh, I guess he started three. It was Packers, it was Lions, and now it's last week's game. So after three I, games, we don't know exactly what he is yet. I think in, even in saying that, saying that we don't know what he is yet after three games is almost a way that the Patriots staff can rationalize this as well. They can use this as an opportunity while Mac Jones is still healing up to say, let's see what we got in this Bailey Zappi kid. So I kind of wonder if Bill Belichick and his team are kind of considering that, using Mac mm-hmm. Jones' injury as an excuse to see what they have in Bailey Zappi. But it- 